podcast, podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 71st episode of the Nauticast entitled Independence Day, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Catelyn 11, in which the vassals of Winterfell and Riverrun come together to declare with one voice that Rob Stark is the King of the North. The King of the North! The King of the North! Uh-uh. I'm sorry, did I get, get too crazy right there? You chanted that beautifully, sir, but I don't know how this pattern of you singing the episode titles became a thing, but I'm going to strangle this baby in the crib immediately. <laughs> you will never do that again. Uh, but it's it's a great song, Independence Day. I used to listen to every single uh, afternoon, drive with my mom, we listened to the Sean Hannity show. It was the, it was the bumper music for it back in the day. No comment. No comment. <laughs> Obviously, this is a huge, pivotal chapter in the series. This is the King in the North chapter. It's one of the biggest chapters in the series in terms of the political side of A Song of Ice and Fire. And there's no better guest we could have for it than our guest this week. You may know him from his blog, Race for the Iron Throne, where he does a great chapter-by-chapter analysis of the series that definitely helped inspire this podcast. You may know him from his essay series at Tower of the Hand, covering figures like Stannis and Renly and Ned and John Aaron and all sorts of political figures in the series. You may know him from his excellent Patreon, Race for the Iron Throne Patreon, which you'd all check out if you have not. Or you may know him from his previous appearance on this podcast when we covered Eddard 11 in the Game of Thrones, the chapter in which Ned sits the Iron Throne and sends out the group that becomes the Brotherhood Without Banners. Welcome back to the Nauticast, Stephen Atwell. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. We are very excited to have you back, man. It's a pleasure as always talking with you. We've, I've, I've, personally speaking, I've really enjoyed the last couple chapter by chapters you've done for Race for the Iron Throne. They've been really, really excellent. Uh, Emma and I were both uh, chatting quite a lot last week about your your one about Barrick versus Sandra Clegane. Oh yeah, the the one where at, you know, as an atheist Jew, I got so into like Catholic imagery. <laughs> it, it really made me be like, okay, I do remember way more about my undergraduate education <laughs> than I thought I did. Same for tortured Catholic imagery. That is like the the Martin Scorsese fantasy chapter, and you definitely brought that out. Yeah, it was a great essay on a great scene. You, you got a, and you're working next on a on a Catalan yes, chapter, which Catalan is so perfect 4, for this which episode. Makes a, a really good uh, companion to this chapter. It's sort of the the beginning and the end, or at least the beginning of the end of the northern cause. <laughs> for sure, that's what makes it such a, a perfect episode to have you on for. Again, this is kind of a, a chapter, one of those chapters that feels like people have picked the bones over to a certain extent, but I think there's always more to find, especially in the council scene where every line kind of unlocks a new path and a new idea for it. There's so much to so much to parse, so we, we definitely uh, were excited to have you on for it. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on for it. So thanks for doing it, and we're about to have a whole lot of fun doing this chapter. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warren of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gem that was promised, the high bearded priest, the blue ringed octoling, Lord Jake, assistant to the hand of the king, and Lady Zenia Valerian. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Doug novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmere sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. 
Our question this week comes from Wolfman Zach, or aforementioned Hand of the King, who asks, Now that you're at the end of book one, how have your feelings about the book changed since you started this project? Which characters did you like more or less upon closer inspection? What surprised you the most over the course of the first year plus? And, besides Stannis, what are you looking forward to the most about jumping to the next book? Thanks for doing this awesome thing you guys do. Print some fucking merch. Well, thank you, sir, for your support. And yeah, watch this space in terms of the print some fucking merch. We'll have some announcements about that in the, the medium-term future. But what do you think about that question, Jeff? How are your feelings about a Game of Thrones change as we've gone over it? What did you like more than you thought you would, less than you thought you would? Uh, what, what, what changed? Something that has really been kind of interesting to me is like, I, f- I feel like looking back at it now, like those middle Game of Thrones chapters feel like a little more of a slog than they did the first couple times through it. I was thinking specifically of, of a chapter like Tyrion 5 and Catelyn 6, which are both really good chapters, so it could be wrong, but they are a little bit like when they're when they're like going up into the Vale and stuff like that. And you also have Danny 5 that's kind of in the same kind of bit of chapters where it's it's all good stuff don't get me wrong but at the same time when you're going through you're like okay this this is a lot of information that george is trying to convey and a lot of pages that he's throwing at it and the material that he's putting towards it it's just not my favorite at the same time though i've had i've come away to feeling that the later Tyrion chapters are really really strong in terms of george's overall work and they do flow really really well into his stuff that he does for a clash of kings I've felt that the Catelyn chapters, besides that middle sixth chapter, have been consistently excellent. I think when we're looking at it now, I I feel like that she has the strongest emotional arc, and we are going to talk a lot about that for this chapter specifically. So I I think that's really, really good. And it's actually kind of interesting, because I always thought that Ned was my favorite point of view for for the first book, which is typically what most people would say. But I'm really feeling that Tyrion and Catelyn are probably my two favorites for the book. And finally, this one goes out to Chloe, our friend from the Girls Gone Canon podcast, Lies and Arbor on Twitter. I have found myself enjoying Sansa Stark's arc in A Game of Thrones. I think every one of her chapters has been really, really good. Even her first one where she is the worst brat of herself that she could possibly be. So, yeah, that's that's what I think about book one and how this kind of changed since it started, uh, since my like pr- kind of my, my preconceptions about the book. But I am curious, before we talked about your your story, Emmett, about how the, a Game of Thrones has changed. Uh, you know, Steve, you're in the middle of doing A Storm of Swords right now. How have your feelings about Storm changed and what are you looking forward to in A Feast for Crows or A Dance of Dragons? Are you doing combined reading order for your chapter so, to chapter or are you going to go for Feast or, and then Dance? Yeah, so I decided that I was going to do the combined reading order just because there's okay. There's too many, like, uh, chapters where, like, one person is thinking, I wonder what so-and-so is doing, you know, right now, or, you know, I bet they're doing this, and then immediately the next chapter on the combined reading order is, like, what that person is actually getting up to. So I thought that would be too good an opportunity to miss. In terms of, you know, stuff from A Storm of Swords, it really has some, some astonishing runs to it. Like, just oh, this chapter is right next to this chapter is right next to this chapter, and it's this crazy rush. It, it's, it you know, uh, just because of the time of year, it reminds me a little bit of, like, uh, uh, you know, when a fireworks display, like, ramps into its, like, big crescendo, where it's like, okay, you think it's over, now there's another burst, now there's another burst, now there's another... No, seriously, it's got to be over now, right? <laughs> uh, and it kind of keeps going. So that's what's kind of... Uh, stuck in my mind the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding are really only like half a dozen chapters apart, I think. Yeah. Storm in its last half or last third is just a ridiculous roller coaster ride. 
So yeah, that's that's some great material to work through. And yeah, Jeff, I totally agree with you saying about like the, the middle parts of book one being sometimes a slog. As, as I've been saying, for me, once you know the answer to the John Aaron detective murder mystery, <laughs> it becomes a little less compelling to me. Yeah. But I mean, but the on the flip side, the the emotional character stuff in Ned's chapters, I found myself really connecting with more than ever this reread. In part because I just, in part because I do know where that's going, and that kind of lends it more resonance to me in terms of where John's arc has gone and how kind of Ned's legacy has lasted in Dance with Dragons. That definitely felt really strong. As far as looking forward to book two, besides Stannis, definitely the expansion of the magical elements is something I'm hugely looking forward to in book two, and obviously Melisandre is the most prominent <laughs> example of that. But even besides her, you got Jojen Reed showing up to be all weird and Tolkienish at Winterfell, and you have uh, Jock and Hagar putting Arya through her her three wish paces at Harrenhal, and you've got all the weird trippy stuff going on in Karth with Danny, and that 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 palpable sense of of magic on the rise, and characters talking about it, like uh, Quaith telling Danny that you know this this uh, trickster in in the Carthine Bazaar really can never do any particularly impressive trick until now because of her. So that that mm-hmm. sense of a swell, that the, the, the kind of rush Stephen was talking about with Storm, but not even in terms of plot, more the sense of like this this magical commonality among all these storylines. That's something I really love about Clash, and something that's going to be fun to to talk about as we go through that book. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to all that too. But I have to say, the thing I'm most looking forward to, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone, especially you, you both. But uh, but is the Battle of the Blackwater, of course, which is going, which is the amazing, massive closeout to a Clash of Kings, which is I, I would still put forward as George's best battle storytelling, if nothing else, because it's what six chapters. Stevie would probably know better because he actually did. Oh the yeah, Clash. was it six or seven chapters that that make up the Battle of the Blackwater? One Davos chapter. Three Tyrion chapters and I think two Sansa chapters. Six, yeah, some like that. There's half a dozen. Yeah, it's definitely his most uh, elaborate battle. Uh, you can, you know, point to as as you can point to powerful emotional battle scenes like with Sam and a storm of swords running from the fist of the first man or the whispering wood that we talked about. But just in terms of attention to scale and craft and those multiple sides and the kind of terrible beauty of it all and. You know, having men burn alive, but also having Serdanto show up at the end to talk about the banners, Sansa, the banners, oh, to be a knight, and having both of those things kind of come together at the end. Yeah, that's, that's, there's, there's nothing like that. And Clash is, Clash is, I think, a messier book than Game. Game has this real tightness to it that comes from just being the first one and the smallest cast of characters and the smallest set of locations. Clash is a little messier around the edges just because everything is expanding. But yeah, there's, there's nothing more giddy than the Blackwater in terms of his battle scene. So definitely looking forward to that as well. Absolutely. Should be a lot of fun. So thank you, Wolfman Zach, for your question. If you guys are interested, you're welcome to ask us questions at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOAF. That feature is available for all patrons who subscribe at the $10 above a month sworn sword level. Thanks, Wolfman Zach, for the question. And we are on to the synopsis for Game of Thrones Catlin 11. Like I was saying, the later Catlin chapters are super, super strong. And there is no stronger chapter than this one because it is outstanding. In more ways than simply King of the North. But we will get to that, of course. We will be shouting lots of King of the Kings of the North in this chapter. So here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Catelyn 11. It seemed a thousand years ago that Catelyn Stark had carried her infant son out of River Run, crossing the Tumblestone in a small boat to begin their journey north to Winterfell. And it was across the Tumblestone that they came home now, though the boy wore plate and mail in place of swaddling clothes. And thus opens Catelyn 11, our final, our final Catelyn chapter in A Game of Thrones. Catelyn, Rob, Greywind, and Theon are in one boat. 
Brenda Tully, Great John Umber, and Rickard Karstark are in the second. The river pushes them past the wheel tower, making Catelyn smile sadly. Soldiers and servants shout Catelyn and Rob's names, as well as Winterfell, while the banners of House Tully fly from, quote, every rampart. It was a stirring sight, yet it did not lift Catelyn's heart. She wondered if indeed her heart would ever lift again. Oh, Ned. I feel you, Catelyn. I really, really do. The boat turns and they come up to the water gate, which Catelyn notes disapprovingly is red with rust. As they pass under the gate, she starts thinking tactical thoughts about whether the gate should be replaced and whether the current gate will withstand a battering ram. Good questions. Passing under the arched walls through shadows and sunlight, the party arrives inside River Run to meet with Sir Edmure Tully, Goat of A Song of Ice and Fire. That's my new title for him. He is the Goat, who only did one thing wrong his entire life, much like Catelyn. He stands with dinted armor with beautiful auburn hair and a fiery beard next to Lord Titus Blackwood, who had led the sortie against one of the Lannister camps. Edmure orders the boat brought to shore. Greywind jumps out of the boat, knocking one of Edmure's men over. It's everyone's laughter. Theon picks Catelyn up and carries her to the shore to avoid her getting wet, which might be Theon's best action to date and to come. Edmure comes down to her, calls her sweet sister, but he's sad, worn, and a little wounded, and not just physically. Catelyn hugs him fiercely. Your grief is mine, Cat. When we heard about Lord Eddard, the Lannisters will pay. I swear it. You will have your vengeance. Will that bring Ned back to me, Catelyn asks, asks sharply. And this this is why I love Catelyn Stark so much. She's breathing emotion through the events here, but she isn't wrong either. Catelyn asks to see Big Daddy Hoster, and Edbier says he's at the Solar. Hoster's steward gives a bit more explanation, telling Catelyn that he's bedridden. But he did command Catelyn to be brought to him as soon as she arrived inside River Run. Edbier, who is good by the way, volunteers to take Catelyn up to his dad. Catelyn and Edbier cross the Lower Bailey, the same one that Littlefinger and Brandon Stark had dueled on, Push through a door, and then Catelyn asks how bad Hoster is. Edmure soberly tells her that, well, Hoster is dying, and Catelyn is filled with anger. You should have told me. You should have sent word as soon as you knew. Well, Edmure would have sent word, but Hoster had commanded that no word of his frailty should escape River Run, lest the Lannisters should um seize on the news and attack or something. Hmm. Catelyn curses herself, stating that if she hadn't taken Tyrion prisoner, none of this would have happened. And I just want to encourage Catelyn to go back and listen to episode 28 of the Nauticast because she's being very hard on herself in ways that aren't entirely fair. When they get to the top of the staircase, they enter Hoster's chambers with Edmure explaining that Hoster likes to sit in the sun. Hoster Tully had always been a big man, tall and broad in his youth, portly as he grew older. Now he seemed shrunken, the muscle and meat melted off his bones. Even his face sagged. The last time Catelyn had seen him, his hair and beard had been brown, well streaked with gray. Now they had gone white as snow. Hoster's eyes open and he calls out, little cat, and smiles and reaches for her face. I watched for you. Edmure bugs out with a bow and Catelyn kneels to take Hoster's hands in hers, noting how her father's hands were large, but pretty weak right now. You should have told me, a rider, a raven. Riders are taken, questioned. Ravens are brought down, Hoster answers. Pain overcomes Hoster then, and he grips Catelyn's hands and tells her about the crabs pinching inside his stomach. It's some horrifying imagery that makes me not really look forward to dying one of these days. Hoster's been taking milk of the poppy, but he hadn't taken any today as he wanted to see Catelyn. I'm here, father, Catelyn says, with Rob, my son. He'll want to see you too. Hoster remarks that Rob had his eyes, and Catelyn says that he did, and still does. Rob also took Jamie Lannister prisoner and liberated River Run. Hoster had seen all this. He watched it from the gatehouse the night prior, how the torches came in a wave, how the sweet cries floated across the river, how the Lannister siege tower went up in flames. He could have died happy just witnessing all that. Was all of that Rob's doing? 
Catelyn takes great pride in telling Hoster that, yeah, it was. Oh, also, Brendan, your brother, he's back too. Any thoughts on this development, Lord Hoster? Yeah, some thoughts, but we'll get to those momentarily. In the meantime, Hoster asks after Lysa and whether she's back, and Catelyn has to admit that Lysa is not back. Big Daddy Hoster is sad at this development. He wanted to see her again before, you know, he died. But she ain't here. She's in the veil with, quote, Lord Robert Aaron. But enough about that, Brett. Let's talk about Rob. Does Hoster want to see him now? He most certainly does. He had Hoster's eyes. How about Brendan? You want to see him too? The Blackfish? Has he wed yet? Take it, girl to wife? No, he is not, Lord Father. And then I just I, I just really love how George develops minor characters, especially here. Hoster then gets angry about Brendan not marrying. Hoster had told Brendan to marry, but he refused a great match with Bethany Redwine. Is she still waiting for Brendan? No, she's married to Lord Rome with three kids now. Hoster asks again if Brendan had married, and you get the sense that Catelyn is a bit impatient here. No, Dad, he ain't wed yet, but he fought his way to River Run. Begrudgingly, Hoster admits that Brendan was, quote, ever the warrior. Then exhausted, he asks for Brendan to come later on. Catelyn kisses him and leaves him, quote, in the shade of his keep with his rivers flowing beneath. Catelyn walks down the lower bailey and meets up with Brendan. She tells him that he's dying and the Blackfish looks pained by this admission. He asks if he can see Hoster and Catelyn reports back that he's sick, too sick to fight. Brendan chuckles. I am too old a soldier to believe that. Hoster will be chiding me about the red wine girl even as we light his funeral pyre. Damn his bones. Cat smiles and asks after Rob. Brendan says he was with Theon the last time he checked. So Catelyn goes down to the Great Hall and hears Theon talk about the tactics that they used during the Whispering Wood. When she doesn't see Rob, she asks where he went. Theon tells her that he's gone to the Godswood. It was what Ned would have done. He is his father's son as much as mine. I must remember. Oh, gods, Ned. She finds Rob in the Godswood, kneeling in front of the Weirwood tree, his sword stuck at the ground in front of him, his hands around its hilt. Northern Lords and Tyus Blackwood surround him in kneeling prayer. At witnessing the sight, Catelyn muses that she's becoming something of an agnostic these days, but she doesn't disturb their prayers all the same. She waits. And as she waits, watching the river, memories come flooding back to her. Yeah, I see you, George. Flooding back to her. Mm-hmm. Catelyn remembers how Edward broke his arm by these trees and how she and Lysa played a kissing game with Peter Baelish. Even then, Littlefinger was eating mints and trying to get to first base with Cat. He tries French kissing Catelyn, but she'd refused him. He tried with Lysa, but she hadn't refused him. She liked it. Hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with things that will be revealed later on in the books. Probably not. Rob rises, sheathes his sword, and Catelyn wonders if Rob ever kissed a girl. Maybe Jane Poole or one of the serving girls? But now Rob has led men into battle, and he's killed men in battle. This makes Catelyn cry angry tears. When Rob sees her, he states that he needs to call a council. When Catelyn reports that Hoster wants to see him, Rob states that they need to meet in council first. Lord Terrorist Renly Baratheon has become King Terrorist Renly Baratheon, claiming Robert Baratheon's crown. Catelyn is shocked. Wasn't Stannis Robert's heir? Everyone had thought so, but Renly had gotten himself his traitor's crown. And listen up, Renly stands. Even Catelyn Stark gets all like, uh, what the fuck, Renly here? So bear that in mind. So a war council meets in the River Run Great Hall. Edmure sits in Hoster's place on the high seat of the Tullys, with the Blackfish at his side and Riverlander's soldiers flanking them on both sides. Lots of Riverlords were here now, now that Rob had beaten the Lancers, of course. Carol Vance was here, Mark Piper, Sir Raymond Derry's 10-year-old son, Jonas Bracken and Titus Blackwood are there as well, of course sitting as far apart from each other as they could possibly be. The, meanwhile, the fewer Northern Lords sit opposite from the Riverlords. 
The council begins as all councils should begin with arguing late into the night, shouting, cursing, reasoning, cajoling, jippery, bargaining, slamming drinks down, threatening, walking out, returning, all the usual council business. News that Bruce Bolton had reformed his army of the twins is brought forward. More news that Tywin crossed the train and made for Harrenhal is also announced. And there is that whole business of the two kings. Many of the lords want to march on Tywin at Harrenhal, but Mark Piper urges Rob to attack Casterly Rock. Others counsel Rob to stay put here and figure out what to do. Besides, Jason Malstra puts in that River Run stands athwart Lannister's supply lines back to the Westerlands. This would give them the chance to rest their weary troops in. But Titus Blackwood wants to mount up and march for Harrenhal, bringing down Bruce Bolton's army. Jones Brecken, who I do not like, states that they should pledge their sword to King Terrace and join with his army down in Highgarden. Renly is not the king, Rob says. It was the first time her son had spoke. Like his father, he knew how to listen. Galbert Glover remarks that Joffrey killed dead. They, they can't swear to some evil king. Rob agrees that they can't, but that just makes Joffrey evil. I do not know it makes Renly king. Joffrey is still Robert's eldest trueborn son, so the throne rightfully belongs to him by all the laws of the realm. Were he to die, and I mean to see that he does, he has a younger brother. Tommen is next in line after Joffrey. Mark Piper states that Tommen is a Lannister, and Rob agrees, a bit troubled. Regardless, they can't swear to Renly, he's Robert's younger brother. Stannis comes before Renly. Lady Mormont, who I like, agrees. Stannis has the better claim, but Mark stupidly states that Renly is crowned and that Highgarden and Storm's are rallying to his cause, and Doran Martell will join with him too. The Dornishmen will not be like Renly. <laughs> okay, George, sure they won't. All the same, joining with Renly would put six of seven kingdoms against the Lannisters, and then they can mount Cersei, Joffrey, Tywin, Tyrion, Jaime, and Kevin Lannister's heads on spikes. Why should they join with Stannis? What does he have that Renly doesn't? The right, Rob says, absolutely correct. Edmure asks if Rob then means to declare for Stannis, but Rob doesn't know. He prayed to the gods for guidance, but they didn't answer. While Rob knows for goddamn sure that the Lannisters murder his dad because they lied about him being a traitor, doesn't that make them traitors if they fight against Joffrey? Enter Sir Steve Frey, remember him, who urges Rob to let Renly and Joffrey duke it out amongst themselves and then declare for the winner. Maybe give Tywin a truce in the meantime? And of course, everyone erupts into a fury with the great John shouting, Craven at Steve Frey. Remember, it's, his name is actually Stevern Frey, but I like calling him Steve Frey. Besides, Mage Warmont puts in, they don't want to seem weak now. Why not a peace, Catelyn says, speaking for the first time in this council. Everyone looks at Catelyn, but it's Rob's attention that she feels the most. Rob states that the Lannisters murdered his dad and Catelyn's husband. He unsheathes his sword and lays it on the table in front of him. This is the only piece I have for Lannisters. Great John, yeah, boys, Rob, while everyone erupts into shouts and fist pumping, but Catelyn ain't done yet. My lords, Lord Eddard was your liege, but I shared his bed and bore his children. Do you think I love him any less than you? Catelyn took a long breath and said to herself, Rob, if that sword could bring him back, I should never let you sheathe it until Ned stood at my side once more. But he is gone, and a hundred whispering woods will not change that. Ned is gone, and Darren Hornwood, and Lord Karstark's valiant sons, and many other good men besides, and none of them will return to us. Must we have more deaths still? Great John says something totally cool about how chicks don't understand this, this war shit, as if Mage and maybe Daisy Mormont are not sitting right there with their well-used maces and morning stars in hand. Rickard Karstark adds in that bros need vengeance, but Catelyn understands. If she had Cersei, she'd show how gentlewomen could be. Sure, Cat might not understand all the war shit, but she knows futility. We went to war when Lannister armies were ravaging the Riverlands, and Ned was a prisoner falsely accused of treason. We fought to defend ourselves and to win my lord's freedom. Now all that is done. Catelyn will mourn for Ned forever, but she has to think of the people who are actually alive. Arya and Sansa specifically. 
she'd trade all four Lannister prisoners for them. She wants Rob safe in Winterfell, ruling from Ned's seat. I want you to live your life, to kiss a girl and wed a woman and father a son. I want to write an end to this. I want to go home, my lords, and weep for my husband. Everyone gets good and goddamn quiet at that until Uncle Brendan Tully, just having recently read Isaiah 2 in his small group Bible study, puts in that peace is great and all, but it's no good hammering your sword to, into a plowshare if you must forge it again on the morrow. Rickard Karstark, engaging in some sunk cost fallacy, says that what did his sons die for if he returns to his castle with only their bones? Jonas Bracken agrees, talking about how Gregor Kilgane burned his holdings. He ain't been any of them. And to Catelyn's dismay, Titus Blackwood actually agrees with Jonas, probably the first time ever. They can't declare for Joffrey and then have Renly win. They'd be traitors to Renly. Mark Piper, always hot, says he won't call Lannister his king. The Dairy Boy Lord agrees. Everyone shouts. Catelyn laments. She had come so close, she thought. They had almost listened. Peace isn't going to happen. Rob had cast the die when he crossed the twins and pledged to marry Walter Frey's daughter. But Catelyn saw his true bride plain before her now. The sword he laid on the table. Catelyn wonders if she'll ever see Sansa and Arya again when the great John Aubrey lurches to his feet and, oh boy, you knew I was going to read as much of this as I could possibly get away with. My lords, he said, here is what I say to these two kings. Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in Highgarden or Dorm? What do they know of the wall or the wolf's wood or the barrows of the first men? Even their gods are wrong. The others take the Lannisters too. I've had a belly of them. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we married, and the dragons are all dead. There sits the only king I mean to bend my knee to, my lords. The king of the north. The great John kneels and laces sword at Rob's feet. Lord Rickard Karstark declares that he'll have peace on those terms. He draws his sword and kneels beside the great John. Mage Wormont stands. The king of the north. She lays her spiked mace next to the swords. Riverlords rise. Blackwood, Bracken, Malister. And, you know, I'm just going to read to the end here, right? Catelyn, watch them rise and draw their blades, bending their knees and shouting the old words that had not been heard in the realm for more than 300 years since Aegon the dragon had come to make the Seven Kingdoms one. Yet now we're heard again, ringing from the timbers of her father's halls. And all together now... The king in the, 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 the north. The king in the north. The king in the north. The king in the north. Man, my, my heart is pounding right there. That's so good, guys. Very proud of everyone here. And that is the Game of Thrones. Catelyn 11, the king in the motherfucking north. A couple of people have asked me, like, what are my processes for doing these chapters week by week? And I'm curious how you guys do yours. I know I've seen some stuff, uh, Stevie, do, like, your massive outlines. It's just crazy to me. Um, but what I typically do is I listen to the chapter on audiobook, and then I read it because, you know, I actually do read, laugh out loud. Then I listen to it, then read it again before I go through the chapter while writing the synopsis, read a couple more times the schedule permits, writing notes on other topics as I see fit. So, no shit, there I was this past Wednesday, the day before July 4th, listening to the audiobook of this chapter on my way to grab some lunch. And when the dearly departed Roy Detrice read the closing lines of this chapter, I stopped in the parking lot and just let the wave of emotion just overwhelm and crest me. It's been like eight years since I saw this event on screen in Game of Thrones Season 1, Episode 10. Seven years since I read it in a Game of Thrones for the first time, and there I was sniffling in broad daylight like a big fucking baby. I mean, even, even knowing what's to come, this chapter packs an enormous emotional punch years after I first encountered this scene. It's synthesized emotion, almost musical, really. You start to understand why this book and book series is magical. So obviously there are countless reasons A Game of Thrones did as well as it did. Critically, commercially, and in terms of generating an intense fan base. 
But rereading it over this past year and a half with you and now arriving at the end, it's clear that this book launched what is now a massively successful franchise, in large part due to the one-two punch it leaves you with. King in the North and the Music of Dragons, two phenomena that haven't occurred in living memory, the culmination of the political magical plots side by side. It's thrilling even now, like a, a synthesized emotion like you said. And given that, it seems ridiculous to call Catelyn 11 underrated in any respect, but like any chapter or episode of television that becomes known for its knockout climax, the buildup often goes underappreciated by comparison. And we want to dig into the buildup this episode, not only because it's interesting in its own right, but because it makes that climactic moment more complex than it might seem long after the initial shock has faded. And that's why we wanted Stephen on, as I said earlier, to tease out those layers. So what did you think of this chapter on reread, sir? I mean, I, I love it all over again. So I, I think there's kind of like three layers that I'm operating on here or that, that I can see. One are sort of dilemmas of war. Which way do we march? What happens if we get that wrong? Dilemmas of politics. Which king do we support? What happens if we get that choice wrong? And then three, at, at the very end, dilemmas of nationalism. What is the war about? What is the kingdom in the north? Who belongs to it? And what does it mean to, to belong to it? And all of those are fundamentally, you know, ambiguous questions. There are arguments made on every conceivable side, and the answers aren't entirely clear right up until the end in which it's sort of the decision is taken out from their hands. Like, you know, they're, they're meant to come to a decision, and, you know, it's not Rob who makes the decision, it's not Catelyn... It's not any of the, the sort of, you know, the major leaders. It is this one sort of extemporaneous, spontaneous voice that just sort of stampedes the whole crowd into a decision. That's going to have really, you know, kind of hard to fathom long-term consequences. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. I think this is a decision that as as echoings that echoes out even to the end of a dance of dragons and on into the winds of winter as you know a, a number of these people are still fighting as we learn from from the asha winds of winter fragment you know you have this stag and lion banner being raised by the phrases they're approaching stannis's camp there and you have the northmen on the the one side of the lake so the the things that we see here then the, the cause of northern independence and the anti-lancer sentiment expressed is uh, extending its fingers all the way to events that we have not that have not even seen the published light yet you know when we were talking uh, we we talked a bit before about brand 6 and how you know the trope of marching off to war is subverted or deconstructed kind of depending on your perspective by having the camera stay at winterfell focusing on those left behind instead of falling rob off to war again the camera does pick up with catlin showing up in catlin 8 to rob's camp here, you know, it's, it's interesting. You can read this chapter almost as pastiche to traditional fantasy tropes of the boy hero rising to become the king, the kind of the King Arthur figure grasping the hilt of the sword and pulling it out. We, we pump our fists at King of the North. How I mean, we, we basically just did that a bit ago. We didn't just basically do that. We did do that a bit ago. But I don't think this is like pastiche to the kind of the King Arthurian tropes. I think George plays with them. I think he works with them. I think he interrogates them. But at the reason why I don't think that this is just kind of a tropey conclusion to the political story in a game of thrones is the perspective of the person who we are witnessing these these events through you know the voice in the background wondering about the chances that rob has at victory giving us kind of a clear-eyed perspective on the cost of war despite their already triumphant victories despite the triumph of the end of, of this end scene that that's our point of view for this chapter grief-stricken yet honest catelyn urges peace and speaks against the war because she thinks and is ultimately proved correct that it will be futile uh, you know, people have already died and more will die if Robbie continues this war. 
George's deconstruction of the trope of thrilling battle and political heroics is having our point of view not be Rob or Theon or one of the other Lords Bannermen shouting King of the North at the end of this chapter. It's, it's having Catelyn, an, an anti-war voice, be our point of view for the chapter. And I'm really, really glad that is the point of view for this chapter itself because it sets a very interesting tone for what should otherwise be the culminating triumph of the Stark cause at the end of A Game of Thrones. That being said, though, it is very different from what we saw on Game of Thrones Season 1, Episode 10. As much as I think all of us love it at some level, there is a massively different tone struck there. Yeah, that's something that struck me in reread, was how different the opening of Catelyn 11 is from the first Rob Catelyn scene after Ned's execution in Season 1. And everyone loves that scene. Yeah, it's Michelle Fairley walking along sadly as everyone bows in, in grief and respect. And then she hears Rob howling in grief at a distance and finds him hacking away at the tree with his sword. She says the most uh, mom thing ever, Rob, you've ruined your sword. Because that's, that's all you can say in the moment. And you get the camera spinning around them. And Catelyn says, you know, we have to save your sisters and then we'll kill them all. Which is frustrating in retrospect because they had Stoneheart right there in their hands. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a great scene. And it lends Rob a vulnerability that ties into the devastation we see with his younger siblings. And the end of both book one and season one. But that's not at all what we get in this chapter. Which opens instead with this hero shot splash panel designed to make Rob look like the most awesome person ever. Rob sat in the bow with grey wind, his hand resting on his direwolf's head as the rowers, as the rowers pulled at their oars. Like, even Robert would doff his cap at how thoroughly Rob nails the image of the young, charismatic, rebellious warrior king, and from his name on down, Robert is the model Rob is drawing on at Riverrun, albeit probably unconsciously and just organically as part of his actions, I don't think he's necessarily thinking to himself that he's copying Robert in the same way that Renly is clearly deliberately trying to reverse engineer Robert's image when you get to Clash of Kings. And I think you can see here that George wants to show us the young wolf, not merely tell us about him. He wants us to feel that legend growing. He wants us to feel that Rob is larger than life as this chapter starts. So his crowning, when the chapter ends, makes intuitive sense. Of course he crowned this guy. Who wouldn't crown this guy? Just look at him. I mean, look at how he frames Rob praying for Ned in the river run Godswood. His long sword was before him, the point thrust in the earth. His gloved hands clasped, clasped around the hilt. He just looks the part of the perfect fantasy hero. It's no wonder Jane Poole gave him moist-eyed glances as Catelyn was, as thinks about at one point in this chapter. Rob is auditioning to fill the hero-shaped hole that Dad left behind. And while, you know, Ned wasn't necessarily like this on the inside, he had to play that role. He had to keep up that public image, what Bran and Catelyn call the Lord's face. And now Rob has to wear that Lord's face, the way Sansa has to keep playing the role of the the sweet, dutiful lady love to Joffrey. Obviously, Sansa's predicament is very different from Rob's, and she has a lot less power over what's going on. But both Star kids have to kind of play characters from the songs, even while aging into different perspectives on them. And so the, the opening shot of Rob, so to speak, in Catalan 11 isn't as psychologically intimate as the one in Season 1, Episode 10 of the show. But as you were saying, Jeff, this is why Catalan's the POV and not Rob. And you see those kind of emotional undercurrents tightening like a noose around her and definitely kind of laying the groundwork for Stoneheart. Yeah, it's you kind of wonder whether they were going to go for Stoneheart originally and then they kind of pulled up the reins after their big talk with George in 2013. Like you kind of wonder whether George sat them down and be like, okay, so Stoneheart is going to be a character that's going to go all the way deep into A Dream of Spring. And they're like... Ooh, don't know if we can really do that. We just, we want to kind of focus on a few major characters along with these other side characters. Don't think that Stoneheart's really going to work out. But I do think there's like a big thematic difference in Catelyn's point of view, both between the books and the show. You know, in as I said before, like she is the anti-war, anti-vengeance voice, whereas in the show, Catelyn is more 
tactical, if you want to call it that. Her, she says, we'll get the girls back and then we'll kill them all. So it's like, um, you know, it's kind of great in the sense that like if they're setting up Stoneheart, you have the kind of foundation, the foundation there. But the part of the reason why Stoneheart is an amazing, tragic figure in the books is that it basically twists Catelyn's anti-vengeance viewpoint that she expresses in this chapter and towards it her towards her becoming utterly consumed with avenging Rob and all of the horror that's been done to her family by the perpetrators of the Red Wedding and by other people who have done horrible things to to the star, to the Stark cause and to the and to House Stark and to her children and stuff like that. It's not that different in, in some ways if you think about it to what happened with Ilaria. Hmm. Where just it, at a certain point, I, I think they just weren't that interested in voices that were questioning that kind of like real politic nihilism <laughs> um, on the show and just sort of like either you know excised them. Gave, gave their plots to other characters, in the case of Lady Stoneheart, um, or just, like, completely inverted them. That's a great point. And obviously, George was invested in Catelyn as a POV character precisely to find this perspective and, and give Rob's story a little more weight and a little more uniqueness by having Catelyn's POV flavor. And I definitely think you can see that in this chapter, that George, right now, he isn't as interested in showing us Rob's thoughts and feelings as in measuring his political impact. And that's tied up in his image. You need a perfect storm of skill and charisma and good timing to put a seaworthy rebellion together. Again, just look at Robert or Damon Blackfire. And George is just using every tool throughout Cattle and Eleven to communicate that Rob has all of those. And as, as he sails into River Run to the cheer of the crowds, and you can really see why he has both the North and the Riverlands at his back. And he's tying together both sides of the family. Like when the, when the river lords look at Rob, they see the Tully looks, that just that red hair and that, 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 that perfect, uh, you know, emblem of the Tully face. But the north sees the direwolf, his hand on the direwolf, the, the emblem of House Stark. The, the river lords see the, you know, savior of Riverrun coming in past the water tower and the blackfish is coming home with him. But the north is, especially when you get to the, the Great John speech and how the, the northern lords talk about Rob going forward, they see a conqueror who's going to avenge not only Ned, but all their losses in the south. And that certainly is a, is a difficult political balance to, to manage. But on, their, on the other hand, in this moment, that's what really lifts Rob up is that he's got not just his, you know, his his birth name, so to speak, his father's house, but also his mother's house and all their lords. Yeah, I think it's cool that you have, as Rob is sailing into River Run itself, you have Riverlanders chanting for Rob's name. So you have like kind of the macro level, but I think you also have at the micro level too, where you have the character of Hoster Tully, who repeatedly is reminding Catelyn, he had my eyes. And Catelyn is saying, he has your eyes. Exactly. So Rob has the both the Riverlanders side to him as well, which appeals to to them, obviously as their liberator of, of River Run. But also he has the Northern side as well, the conquering aspect, the Ned Stark aspect as as Catelyn makes numerous mentions and thoughts in this chapter to how Rob is resembling Ned Stark. So that combination is really, really powerful. Like you said, the timing is is excellent. The the luck that they had is really good. But also the the imagery that Rob brings to the fore makes this makes him incredibly an incredibly powerful and compelling political figure and really contrast to the other claimants to the Iron Throne well, Rob isn't claiming the Iron Throne, to the other people who are declaring themselves king at this point, as well as a contrast to people like Tywin Lannister and others who have been in leadership positions in Westeros in the weeks and months before this event. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we prefer Stannis to Renly on the whole, but Stannis, one of Stannis' big problems is he has terrible optics for some, <laughs> for some admirable reasons and some petty reasons. But with both Rob and Renly, you can see early on in the war that they're very... 
reassuring figures in some ways. Like when the North and the River Lords look at Rob, they go, ah, okay, that's my guy. In this moment of <laughs> chaos and uncertainty and civil war, that looks like the kind of guy who's going to make everything okay. And when the Reacher Lords and the Storm Lords look at Renly, they go, ah, young Robert, okay, we're just going to reset this. We're just going to reboot <laughs> the last 15 years and start over and see if we can do things better this time. And yeah, that kind of palpable rush to, to fill a vacuum, that it's not just that Rob has all these charismatic attributes uh, but he, he's coming to this moment in time, this uncertain two kings in the realm and no agreement. And that's what really everything comes together for him to be king in the north. But before we get to that, as we said in our episode on Tyrion 9, we wanted to save our breakdown of the Battle of the Camps, Rob's victory at Riverrun, for this chapter with Stephen. And, and what a victory it is. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Taking a look at the Battle of the Camps, when I was looking back at Tyrion 9 and comparing it with stuff we find out in Catelyn 11, it really seems more substantive important and even more impressive than the Battle of the Whispering Wood for a few reasons. Um, just a few off the top of my head. Uh, Rob's ability to time his maneuvers on the Lannister army from geographically isolated directions. That's that's pretty impressive given the fact they didn't have radios or telecommunications or anything. That they, and it's at night. And at night. Yeah. It's crazy, right? And then you have Rob's empowerment of his supported commanders, Brendan Tully, Great John Umber, to operate effectively on the field. And more importantly, the overall impact on the size of the Lannister host. Yes, the Whispering Wood was great in that it removed Jamie Lancer or took Jamie Lancer off the board. But in terms of its overall impact on the numbers game, it didn't have as large of an impact as the Battle of the Camps did. I mean, yeah, it basically wipes an entire army off the field. It's one of the few times in the War of Five Kings that, you know, a host ceases to exist Mm. completely. And most notably, the other time that that happens is also Rob Stark. (laughs) That's true. Very, very true. So a little bit of background to the battle itself. You know, we talk about numbers and always the the fucking nerds and me too, who is not, a, I'm totally not a nerd, are into the numbers and the order of battle for itself. And just very, very quickly, because we've done this a couple of times now, the Stark Riverlander numbers have not changed significantly. Uh, there's about 6,000 plus cavalry adding in the Malister elements. I have this like big asterisk with all of the Riverlands numbers, uh, just because, you know, the Malisters are a big enough house that like they joined, you know, them plus all of the other survivors of of Edmure's battle uh, joined up with Rob. And that's got to be a more, I don't know, substantial contingent. So I would take the like the high side hmm. on any odds of, of Stark numbers. But doesn't make it any less impressive a victory. True that. I mean, I think like Jamie is estimating that he's got 50 Malisters in his rear sort of thing. But if you add in other people who have fled from River Run itself that didn't get inside the walls, it's probably higher, maybe 6,500 to 7,000 or so outside of the castle. And then I'm estimating, estimating maybe 250 to 500 infantry inside the castle itself, which is the Tully Garrison plus the Blackwood retainers that are able to flee back into the castle with Titus itself. 500 is a bit large for a castle garrison, as, as Steve, you've written about in the past. Yeah. But I am adding just a little bit more numbers in there, counting the Blackwood numbers that got into the castle. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it, it doesn't make sense for a normal garrison, but if a, a defeated army ran back inside the walls, then it makes more sense. Yeah. So I hope you guys like this this nerd shit because I'm, I'm all about the numbers in this, for these battles. And then we have the Lancers and the Westermen. They have about 12,000 infantry. I'm estimating equal division between the archers and spears swordsmen. If Forley Prester's camp is representative of the three camps in whole, he's got 2,000 uh, spears and swords and 2,000 archers. And then they got about 500 cavalry because if we remember last time, Jamie took 
three quarters of the Lancer cavalry out to meet uh, what he thought was the Malisters out in battle, but it turns out to be Rob Stark and the Whispering Wood, and he gets crushed and smashed, and none of those cavalrymen make it back to River and Cell. So Rob is going into the battle outnumbered roughly two to one, but Rob has five, I'm counting five, major force multipliers going into the battle. He's neutralized most of the Lancer cavalry, negating their ability, negating the ability for the Lancers to countermaneuver on him in force. With Brendan and Theon still killing Lancer scouts outside of River Run, the threat of detection of their pre-planned positions have been mitigated from uh, from being detected. And then three, three, Rob and Brendan also have conducted extensive reconnaissance on the Lancer positions, as we'll talk about in a moment. So they have a clear view of the disposition and defensive structures the Lancers have erected around their camps. Four, Rob's army is all mounted, meaning that they have a monopoly on the violence of action. Or, for those of you who don't know what the violence of action is, it is, quote, the unrestricted use of speed, strength, surprise, and aggression to achieve total dominance against your enemy. Fifth, and most importantly, Rob has Jamie prisoner. So there's no overall commander controlling the individual camps, just individual Westerman lords and knights leading their camps. I would throw in a sixth factor, which is that Rob chooses to divide his army in two. Hmm. Whereas the opponent is divided in three. So hmm. he, even though he's outnumbered overall, he can actually achieve local parity or even superiority because he's, he's attacking, you know, one third of his enemy's army with one half of his army. That's, that's true. And he also would in the timing of the, the second attack against the Southern camp is done when half of that camp is out on the river itself. So he actually has numerical, likely numerical superiority right. over the southern camp. So that's a really good point. Uh, talking a little bit more about the terrain, uh, River Run is interesting because it's so fucking hard to besiege as a castle because it sits at the point where the Red Fork and the Tumblestone Rivers diverge and then the Tullys can open their, quote, sluice gates on the Tumblestone to create a third artificial river that is running southeast from the Tumblestone into the Red Fork, making River Run essentially an island. So Jamie, as we've talked about in our Tyrion Knight episode, have to split his army into three contingents to besiege the castle. And this means that the armies can't easily come to the aid of each other in the event of an attack. And it opens up the possibility of being defeated in detail. Mm, that's true. And that's exactly why River Run was built where it was. I mean, this isn't a coincidence. It was built at this exact uh, position of geographic advantage to ensure that if the residents were ever under siege by a large opposing force, that large opposing force would have to split into three camps, and so a relief force could potentially come to the rescue. And obviously there are a few commanders who could pull it off with as much panache as Rob Stark, but <laughs> that is the kind of the geographical model of River Run. This is its strength. This is the way you can see the Riverlands, which are so often seen as just open to attack and kind of doomed, can actually use their geography to their advantage. And I think you can see George really integrating that well with, with Rob's growing military skills. And as you were saying, Jeff, with his trusting his subordinates, his knowing, okay, this is exactly how I can best make use of the Blackfish. This is exactly how I can best make use of the Great John. And that's a sign of real strong growing confidence as a commander that you see even with, with, with Tywin with all his experience in the last Tyrion chapter, he was kind of melting down as he realized, oh, all my cronies are idiots and are just <laughs> kind of sucking up to me and don't have complete plans and I can't trust any of them. And Rob, well, he certainly has his share of cronies and sycophants and half-useful people. He's getting pretty discerning about which ones he has to use where. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I, and I love your point, too, about how River Run was constructed for that strategic advantage that it poses on the Riverlands. It's an interesting contrast to a castle like Harrenhal, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, and that River Run is naturally very easy to defend, whereas Harrenhal is unnaturally easy to defend because of its size of its walls and the size of the castle itself, um, which makes it, of course, even harder to defend, as we'll talk about when we get into a clash of kings and the and events that happen there. So the battle of the camps itself, so this, this is something that kind of struck me on this reread. It, like, 
I didn't notice before that the Lancers were seemingly on the verge of launching an assault on the castle itself. I mean, they have fully constructed siege towers in the southern camp that's near enough to River Run that Hostertelli can watch them burn later on. So satisfying. And it reads to me that Jamie was growing exceptionally bored by just sitting around besieging the castle. He was going to attack the castle. Was that what you was that your read and, to? And you can almost you can almost imagine how enormous the casualties were gonna be. Because you've got all of those infantrymen stuck on right. a tower that would have to be put on a raft <laughs> and boated across to the walls. And you know that every single catapult on the walls is just going to start raining hell on those things. And, you know, big tall towers do not do well, you know, on, you know, little rafts when getting struck, you know, by missiles. So, you know, in, in some ways, like, you know, it's interesting, like, when Jamie comes back the second time, he's thinking about, like, okay, I'm not going to fuck up again like <laughs> I always did. Like, like if, he had, if he, you know, the Whispering Woods had never happened, you know, I imagine that, like, at least half of his army was never going to walk away from... Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, you talk about the tower, like the the siege towers and the danger that the water poses to them on rafts. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this momentarily, but how a number of those rafts capsized with just soldiers on top of them try putting a motherfucking raft on top of those excuse me try putting a motherfucking siege tower on top of a raft and pushing that towards the castle with boulders being thrown with archers shooting at them not a good day to be a lancer infantryman for sure it sounds like a mobile game it doesn't sound like an actual battle tactic like it sounds just like a nightmare to pull it off in reality yeah i mean uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's totally a Jamie like characterization moment this early on that he was willing to launch a full out assault on River Run itself. Uh, that his vanity and his glory hound his glory hounding would drive him toward to that place that, that's totally jamie lancer at this juncture of, of a game of thrones so prelude to the battle the first thing that rob does is he splits his army into two moving south from the whispering wood in command of one army is brendan tully whose target is the northern lancer camp with rob in command of the second army moving against the southern camp now i i think and this isn't said in the text itself but rob had to ford the tumblestone river at some point west river run itself i am curious about how far west rob had to go to find that place but i do think that yeah. rob has the advantage and that he has the riverlanders with him now at least a few of them so he knows the points where to actually ford the river itself yeah and it shows you how important getting the, rid of the scouts was because that force that attacks the western camp is incredibly exposed right it has to ford a river against two potential opposing enemies on either bank you know, that could potentially destroy that entire force if not for the fact that they don't see him coming and he can make that move unopposed. And then, you know, they're too busy reacting to do anything about it. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, I, you know, in Catlin 8, we talked about how Rob had put up scouts in the direction away from where the Lancers would be coming from. You do wonder whether Jamie did not make the similar choice of putting scouts out to his west because he assumed that the western portion of his army was you know, essentially safe, right? It's running sort of ish away from a lot of the river lords themselves. So he probably didn't put any scouts out that direction. Or if he did put out scouts out that way, that they were all killed by Bernatelli and Theon Greyjoy prior to the battle itself. And then there's the choice of attacking at night. You know, I studied medieval warfare, you know, over a decade now as, over a decade now as an undergrad. But I, I am curious about how common night warfare was because, you know, Steve, I've I studied Byzantine and uh, Crusader warfare specifically is the kind of stuff that I studied in 
night battles were exceptionally rare, at least in the eastern side of of, of Europe and in the conflict points that we find in the, in the Levant going into the uh, the 11th to 12th centuries. Was that common in Western Europe for night battles to occur? Um, so it was uncommon, but it wasn't unknown. It was sort of the definition of a high-risk, high-reward strategy. Probably the most famous medieval night attack is there's a famous night attack um, where uh, um, Vlad Tepish mm. is going to war with um, the the Sultan. And he's, like, outnumbered. He's been doing this sort of guerrilla warfare. Um and they're outside of uh, Targoviste. I think that's how that's pronounced. But, you know, my uh, <laughs> my Hungarian is not very good. Um, and, you know, according to one story, and this is probably entirely apocryphal, Vlad dresses as a Turk and walks into the camp looking for the sultan. Wow. And um, he, you know, finds out that, like, uh, Mehmet has ordered the soldiers to remain in their tents so that they, like, don't cause any, you know, trouble during the night. And then just, like, Vlad leaves and comes back with his whole army. And he wants to kill the sultan himself. <laughs> uh, but, and this sort of shows the, the sort of the dangers of a night attack, he hits the wrong tent in the night. <laughs> so it's instead of, like, this, you know, total decapitation, it's this, like, chaotic brawl in the middle of the night. Um, but, you know, this is where, like, psychology plays a role. Even though, you know, arguably the Ottoman army, you know, was it was still in the field, it wasn't forced to withdraw, um, it was so demoralized that they were like, all right, no more, we're leaving. Uh, other examples, Vikings use the tactic a lot, uh, in part because they have smaller you know, they tended to have smaller armies, more professional than their opponents, uh, and they're typically raiding. It's mm. it's a very common tactic, or not very common. It, it tends to show up more in raiding. It also shows up a lot in Welsh internal warfare, which was often marked by raids, although it was seen as a gambler's throw, right? High risk, high reward. Um, another, um, or I was going to say, the, you know, thing that, I was really glad popped up was it was apparently a favorite technique of Sir John Hawkswood, the famous English uh, condottieri hmm. uh, in in Italy, where he would, although his were sometimes you'd call them night attacks and sometimes they would be basically dawn raids. Hmm. All right. Anything where the idea is attack your enemy while they are asleep, disorganized, not drawn up in ranks and just kind of like steamroll right over them. You know, it's funny in the uh, U.S. Army. We were still taught, and this this tactic goes all the way back to the, the 19th century, but we were taught the stand two. Stand two was always right before the final moments of light occurred at night and right before dawn began during the morning. Because in the 19th, in 19th century warfare, uh, Native Americans would typically attack U.S. Army formations at those times where there was like just a little bit of light there. It was still like kind of fucking with your eyes. So you couldn't quite make out like what was going on there. So that, all right. On to the battle itself. So the first thing that happens is that Brennantelli attacks the northern camp by killing the sentry's position north of the palisade line of wooden stakes north of the northern camp. And then he clears the palisades. And this really shows the value of a good recon of the area. Instead of plunging into the camp and into the sharpened wooden stakes, the blackfish kills the sentry and then clears the obstacles, allowing for the freedom of movement into the camp. The Blackfish's outriders then clear the palisades and the main force then flows in mass into the camp itself, 
killing lasters, burning their tents, doing all sorts of the wonderful things that Bernantelli is famous for. And, you know, it's it's great because I think it's really showing an effective use of mobility and not just and, and also more than just showing an effective use of mobility. It's showing the impact of fear and terror into the Western army. You know, burning the tents is, doesn't have a lot of tactical effectiveness necessarily. I mean, most people are going to get the fuck out of the tents as soon as they smell smoke or they see the flames rising up. But it does scare the bejesus out of these soldiers who are there sitting or potentially sleeping in the in the tents themselves. So that that then leads to the southern camp uh, led by Lord Brax, then trying to voyage across the river itself, either the Tumblestone or the artificial river that the Tullys have created. And they all board the boats that were likely going to be utilized for the the upcoming attack on River Run itself. Uh, and they try to reach the northern camp, but they end up floating downstream, either west along the Tumblestone or southeast along the Artificial River. The Tullys begin throwing rocks at the boats. Lord Brax's boat is overturned, and he drowns, being drowned by his armor Victorian style. Those lucky westermen who then reach the northern shore are met with, I think, Brendan Tully's army itself. Now, that then leads to the attack on the southern camp. So you've got half of Lord Brax's army out on the river itself, half the army still in the camp. So as the northern battle of the northern camp is in full swing, Rob launches an attack on the camp to the south and east of a run in two columns. You have the first column, led by Great John Umber, who moves against the siege showers where he burns them. Rob Stark's column then moves against the Westermen who haven't mounted boats with Lord Brax itself. And the Westermen form a shield wall and hold against Rob's first attack. They're able to repulse it or at least be able to maintain enough uh, position and fortitude in order to hold off for one attack. But then, quick thinking, Titus Blackwood drops the drawbridge and leads the 500 or so Riverrun garrison men and Blackwood retainers from the castle itself and attacks the Western camp from the rear. Titus Blackwood also frees Edmure Tully. And in response, the southern camp is just obliterated. The northern camp is obliterated. The eastern camp, which is led by Sir Forley Prester, is unengaged. But now at number, he retreats with his 4,000 men itself. So that is essentially the battle of the camps itself in terms of the battle of the tactics that are utilized by folks there. Overall, the aftermath, what we're looking at here, the Laster, Laster losses. So of the 12,000 Laster men, 8,000 are captured, killed, or routed. Only Sir Foley Presser's 4,000 men in the eastern camp survive and retreat in good order. And those 4,000 men are kind of like the red ball that the great Germino <laughs> is hiding in his hand to, like, pop up in the other hand. Because they show up again at Oxcross. So these poor bastards who managed to survive this complete rout are the, like the core of the army that um, Stafford Lannister is trying to put together uh, in the Westerlands, and they're going to get decimated again. So, you know, none of the none of the Lannister men who are at this battle, you know, practically are going to survive. So sad. I'm just so sad about that. <laughs> so very, very sad. I, li- I like the comparison to a magic trick just because we don't actually ever eyeball those 4,000 men. We don't really, you know, we don't actually see the battle yeah. of the camps happen. We don't go west with Rob. No. But they serve in a... And we only found out about the, the like, where the 4,000 went from uh, Sospeak Martin. Hmm. Right. He just, he had to bring that up. But it's like, he's he's got to keep that, that Stafford Lannister army still serves that that purpose of, of threatening Rob and Clash of Kings and giving him something to do when he marches west. So yeah, you can definitely see in these late chapters in book one, George running through uh, all the all the eggs he's got to juggle for book two, which is, which is always fun. It is so much fun, man. So the Stark Riverlanders, they don't lose a whole lot of men. We don't actually get a casualty figure from them, but it's likely very light. But overall, they've gained a lot. River Run, the siege is relieved. 
Edbir Tully is freed. Two-thirds of the Lannister army is destroyed or captured or routed. The Tyroshi sellswords, who had joined with Jamie Lannister, turn cloaked to Rob's side. Man, I wonder what happened to them. <laughs> and then they disappeared from the text without a trace. <laughs> right. They, they joined the Bloody Mummers. Anyone who becomes inconvenient joins the Bloody Mummers. What do I do with Rorge and Biter now? Uh, they're the Bloody Mummers now. That's, that's where they go. Uh, yeah, we we had talked about potentially they could be it could have been Greenbeard who is the guy who ends up joining the, joining the Bro Without Banners in our episode on, on Tyrion Nine, but that's not confirmed. But so I just enjoy that they just. I I think at one point Martin just said like, well, they must have gone home. Or something like they went that. back to their home they're planet. Like, Poochie went back to his home yeah, planet. Yeah, just like fuck that. <laughs> well, they're they, they're the most reasonable characters in the entire story. In that case, I want to join these guys. They got yeah. it going on. <laughs> But yeah, no, you guys did a great job, you know, detailing all these these steps Rob takes one by one. And I'm just imagining it from like the perspective of a soldier, even a civilian on the walls of River Run, just watching this happen. The way Hoster describes it is, oh my god, suddenly the fires go up in the siege towers and you got the wolf banners. And this is why they're cheering Rob's name when he when he came in, because he's they had just this image of him, even in a night battle, maybe even especially in a night battle, because as difficult as it is as a general, there's an, an aura of spooky, mysterious power that goes along with it that Rob really takes advantage of when you get to Clash of Kings in terms of his reputation. And so, of course, this is our introduction to River Run. River Run has been built up a lot. It's one of the story's most prominent settings on the whole. And it's our introduction to Edmir and Hoster Tully, both of whom prove to be significant secondary characters. Of course, none of that really comes into play until Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, and A Feast for Crows, but I think Brother, Father, and Castle are all well-established here in terms of Catelyn's story specifically. And at this moment, Catelyn is trying to suppress her depression and her self-loathing in the wake of Ned's death, but what really makes that impossible is the state of her home and family as she comes back to them after so long. On the one hand, she she always has associated Riverrun with these nostalgic memories of childhood. Riverrun, like Winterfell, is a place of sense memories, where everywhere Catelyn walked is like, oh, that's the Bailey where Brandon Littlefinger fought. Oh, that's I remember that smell. I remember this time when we were hanging out growing up. And you have that quote, the splash and rumble of the great water wheel within was a sound from her girlhood that brought a sad smile to Catelyn's face. But it's a sad smile now, because all the rippling banners and cheering crowds and even the sense of being home can't paper over what Catelyn has lost. She's talking about the, the banner of House Tully, this leaping trout, the rippling blue and red field being a stirring sight, but it did not lift her heart, and she wondered if indeed her heart would ever lift again. And her so her relationship to this place that once stood for innocence and peace has now been irrevocably changed in her mind's eye by maturation and war. And the two things definitely go together in her mind and in the book as a whole, maturation and war. You have that really kind of subtly devastating moment where she's gazing up at the bars and wondered how deep the rust went and how well the porcullus would stand up to a ram and whether it ought to be replaced. Thoughts like that were seldom far from her mind these days. And there's a real sadness to her with that, that she's everywhere she looks now, this can't just be the place she grew up. This can't just be the place she played games with Elisa and Littlefinger. This is now a castle at war. This is now a castle that was just under siege. And she has to kind of reconcile that with the river run she remembers. And Edmure and Hoster are framed the same way. They're representative of this larger fall from grace, the good times for House Tilly that she remembers, giving way to the hard times. Quote, Edmure came down the steps to embrace her. Sweet sister, he murmured hoarsely. He had deep blue eyes and a mouth made for smiles, but he was not smiling now. So he's one of many, many characters in A Song of Ice and Fire who used to be full of joie de vivre. They used to have the good times, and now they don't. The, the present day is letting them down in the way these nostalgic memories never do. Or you have Hoster. He, quote, had always been a big man, tall and broad in his youth, portly as he grew older. And now he seemed shrunken. The muscle and meat melted off his bones. Even his face sagged. 
So he's he really reminded me of Drogo this time through, like Drogo and Danny Nine after the blood magic when he's just kind of sitting and staring at the sun. That's kind of what Hoster's been reduced to too. He he also used to be this larger than life figure like Drogo riding all over his territory, and now he can only sit and stare. And Catelyn's reminiscences about Dad throughout the book have made clear that he was her mighty pillar. He was her, you know, example that she built everything around. And the news she's on his, that he's on his deathbed, that really just shatters the reserve she's been trying to maintain in the face of Ned's death, trying to keep the emotions in, and everything just spills out at once. A blind rage filled her, a rage at all the world, at her brother Edmure and her sister Lysa, at the Lannisters, at the Maesters, at Ned and her father and the monstrous gods who would take them both away from her. Of course, it wouldn't be a Catelyn chapter if she blamed not only the gods, but herself. <laughs> it was your doing, yours, a voice whispered inside her, if you would not take it upon yourself to seize the dwarf. And the more, as Catelyn's story gets, goes on, the more and more she will be convinced that she is the author of all her family's doom. Yeah, it, if she had a personal motto, it would be, it is all my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of my mom. Like, that's kind of the way that she is, and that she's like, if I hadn't done this back in 1996, then none of this would have happened. And you're like... You can't really like blame yourself, Mom, for everything that went wrong and the, all the things that went wrong. The same thing goes for Catelyn too. I don't think she's she's being fair to herself. I think she is putting a lot of blame and fault on herself. And, and like we said in in our episode on Catelyn Five, it, it, the the worst you could say about Catelyn Stark and her actions at the end of the Crossroads is that she it sped up the march to war rather than started the war itself because you had all these different factions and characters who were already planning on war and planning on Robert Baratheon's death. So. She's being hard on herself as as a mother can be at that points, as my mom could be anyways. And that's it reads true to her character, if not necessarily true objectively, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, Catelyn is blaming herself in part because it's a way of keeping control. Like if it's all her fault, then her decisions matter and the world responds to them. Because the other option she has right now is to say the universe just decided to destroy my family and my life randomly it's monstrous gods who are doing this and that's really hard for her to accept so even if it's not accurate for her to say it was you're doing yours to herself even if it's not fair for her to beat herself up to that extent it, it, it's a way of keeping the universe sensible for her and of course as we talked about before one of the great overarching threads that makes Catelyn such an interesting character is her insistence to herself that the world is gonna make sense again soon Real soon, tomorrow, the world is going to make sense. And then you get to the Red Wedding and she realizes all at once the world is never going to make sense. And then it all ex- explodes outward from there. But we'll have plenty of time to talk about the Red Wedding when we get to Storm of Swords, fears down the line. Um, before then, in this chapter, of course, we have we have the big council session. And uh, uh, Jeff, you were comparing it to the uh, to the, the Council of Elrond for A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about it. So I was, uh, like I was saying, like in my process, I typically read it one last time, like right before we come on air. And what struck me this time around is that this is George's way of doing a, a scene from Fellowship of the Ring, the Council of Elrond scene that was made very famous in the 2001 Peter Jackson version, where you have various factions coming together, all united with one purpose-ish of being against Sauron itself, being against the Lannisters. I guess everyone is, is sort of semi, sort of anti-Lannister here in this in this council session. And you have everyone shouting and uh, everyone kind of... you have. You know, you have Titus Blackwood and Jonas Bracken, who, you know, what might be the elves and the dwarves that we see in the Council of Elrond scene, how they're all shouting at each other, like, I'm not going to fight alongside of some elf. Well, I'm not going to be with some dwarf sort of thing. And that's kind of what we see here, that it's a, a really interesting session. I, I think, you know, when we talked about Tyrion 9, the council session that Tywin Lannister has is everybody being uh, attempting to say that they're not actually at fault for all the shit that's gone wrong here. And, you know, they're not actually offering any solutions either. 
this is a contrast because there are a lot of solutions being offered and that makes it interesting. It makes it a good contrast and a good parallel to what we saw with Tywin at the end of the Crossroads in Tyrion 9. Yeah, I think the Tyrion 9 comparison is very apt. You have George focusing on both cases on this fractious council meeting as a handy way to summarize where the storyline is right now and hint at where it's going next. But while Tyrion 9 was all about the Lannisters being in deep trouble at every turn, Team Rob is in a more ambiguous position. They have a lot of opportunities, but they have a lot of pitfalls. And it's all captured in that line, there were two kings in the realm. Two kings and no agreement. And you have George emphasizing that, quote, each lord has a, had a right to speak, and speak they did. And then they argue, and they yell, and they stomp out, and they come back. And this is all just him trying to get across the political fluidity of this moment. That it's not as simple as Rob and Edmure just deciding what to do and giving everyone their marching orders. There has to be a genuine attempt to reach consensus, or the Blackfish's biblically derived warning about plowshares being hammered back into swords is going to come true. And consensus is difficult to reach, though, because while there are plenty for options for Team Rob, they all have significant downsides to them. And he's only got enough. It's like, uh, you know, to use a poker analogy, he's playing short stacks. Mm, sure. Right? He's, he's, he's never going to get more men than he's got in this moment, and he's got to push his chips in a given direction. Once you've done that, you are committed. Yeah, I love that. I love that, but the poker analogy, yeah, because he's got to go all in on any two cards, if you want to use the hold'em, keep it as, as poker hold'em, uh, that would potentially give him the opportunity to double up, right? He has to continuously double up until he gets to the position where he's... Uh, he, he's strong enough to do that. You know, it's interesting because I think like the first thing that's brought up to the council is whether they should move on Hall itself. You know, Hall is where Tywin is moving. And this is something I, I will talk about. I have to make a brief mention. Of, uh, I said this on Twitter. that This is a little bit of a uh, anachronism in the chronology because as we know from Tyrion 9, they reach the end of the crossroads days and days after Robb Stark arrives at, at Riverrun itself. And then they make the decision there to march on Heron Hall to occupy Heron Hall, and here we have basically Rob has taken uh, as take as reliever run the siege, and the next day after the Battle of the Camps, we have Rob then saying, "Ah, oh, well, Tywin has marched on Heron Hall, and he's at Heron Hall right now." And you're like, that doesn't quite make sense in terms of the the chronology and everything, but that's it's fine. It's it's not a big deal. It's well, a little bit of a shortcut, but he he has to do it because he has to establish Heron Hall as a very specific location in terms of calculating whether Rob should go march against him. Because, you know, Rob has this potential numerical advantage with his army right now, and he has that kind of military momentum he needs to keep up. But Hall has strengths that could uh, negate Rob's advantages in that regard. Yeah, right. So Tywin has, I mean, I mean Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he has about 20,000 dudes under his command at Hall itself. I think he's got a little bit less. Like, this is something that I've I've gone back and forth on just trying to figure out is that, like, we never get a casualty report from his army at all. Hmm. So unless they suffered no casualties <laughs> at the Green Fork, and no ca- and we know they suffered casualties on the march, uh, you know, I would say probably more like 18,000 at this point. Okay, I mean, that's, that's totally fair. I, I would agree with that, too. I mean, we do know, we do see some casualties at the, at the Battle of the Green Fork, Materian witnesses to them specifically. But, you know, Rob has his... 6,500 cavalry, 500 Riverlanders uh, there. But we have more Riverlanders that are gathering to Rob's cause at Riverrun itself. So I think, was it like fifteen to 16,000 or so Riverlanders and Stark soldiers are at Riverrun. Another twelve to 15,000 under Bruce Bolton up at the Twins themselves that are reforming. And, you know, that, that it, it in terms of actual numbers itself, Rob maybe has a kind of one and a half to two to one advantage over Tywin. 
But Tywin has the advantage in holding the castle of Harrenhal. And as Tyrion remembers Tywin saying in A Clash of Kings, Tywin says has his quote is, one man on a wall is worth 10 beneath it. So those numbers don't quite match up that we have two to one on Rob. And then you have to think about the logistics too. Like how do you keep 35 to 40,000 soldiers fed while besieging the castle? You can't really like scavenge for food lest you alienate the river lords who are now part of your coalition. Well, and you'd be scavenging a, a part of the riverlands that has been burnt to the right. ground. Like whatever food there is. And this is where the like, siege thing i think becomes more of like a balancing act which is how does tywin's army eat <laughs> like you know foraging parties for an army of eighteen thousand are pretty tricky when like everyone around you hates you but at the same time like this would be a really difficult thing because now it's not just eighteen thousand men who are eating from a given catchment area it's now closer to sixty thousand hmm. and pretty soon Everyone goes hungry. Right. Absolutely. And while you're besieging Harrenhal, you got those reinforcements in the Westerlands potentially coming. And, you know, obviously Rob doesn't know about the specific makeup and character of the army that Tywin's going to summon under Stafford Lannister. But he has to have an idea that maybe there's more men in the Westerlands that I would be leaving the Riverlords open to if I move on Harrenhal. As you're saying, once he once he makes any one of these moves, the pitfalls of that move become actualized, not just potential, but immediately start hurting the Riverlands. And I mean, the problem, though, is the same logic applies to everyone just holding the Lannert River run that the Malisters and Freys advise, that we should just hold here and wait and see how the war goes. That also leaves the Riverlands exposed. And of course, it's interesting that, of course, it's the Malisters and Freys who support that path, because they're in the northern Riverlands, and they're protected, and Tywin is nowhere near them. So, of course, they're fine waiting, waiting the war out, whereas if you're in Tywin's way, politically, you can't be on board with that at all. Right. And then you have the, the the possibility, too, that you have all of the Reavers, like Gregor Kilgain and Amory Lorch's bands that are out in the Riverlands themselves, which do have consequences that we see in Catelyn's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, where, you know, Tywin's horrific, horrible, immoral strategy of splitting, of, of basically forcing the River Lords to go back to their homes to defend them as opposed to being with Rob and Edmure at River Run has its impacts because a lot of these Riverlander lords end up sending their levies back home as opposed to being present with Rob in his campaigns in the Westerlands or being with Edmure at River Run or potentially being with Bruce Bolton as well. So there's a there's those are the two major options there is to hold at River Run or to attack Harrenhal itself. But there is a third option that's brought to the fore as well. The other option on the table, of course, is abandoning the Lannisters outright in favor of Renly. And this is the first time Rob speaks up. Renly is not the king. Ah, uh, <laughs> music to my ears. Obviously, his preference... <laughs> Obviously, his preference for Stannis makes our hearts all fiery and warm here at the Novacast, but it, it's not fanboys that leads Rob to say this. Rather, it's his logic that, quote, Bran can't be Lord of Winterfell before me, and Renly can't be king before Lord Stannis. It's really interesting that Rob makes this about his own family and his own line of succession. Like, he's speaking subtly to everyone in the room, hey, don't start thinking about crowning Bran if you don't like me. Don't start thinking Renly's logic is going to apply to the people in this room. Let me assure you right now, it's not. Rob senses a real destabilization at work with Renly's claim, and that's mirrored in everyone's shock that it's the younger Baratheon brother going for the crown. Catelyn is really surprised. She says, I, I thought it would be Stannis, and I forget who it was that responds, but someone responds to her, so did we all, my lady. Yeah, and it's the first sign that, you know, uh, you were talking earlier about how, like, this isn't Rob's POV, so it's a little bit harder to have its thoughts. This is the first time we get that he has thoughts, <laughs> right? He's something more than a boy hero. He's got political ideas. He can see the long-term implications. And that's kind of what he's trying to say to these lords is like, you know, this doesn't just apply to Renly and Stannis. 
Like, if the rule of primogenitor gets overturned, this applies to me, it applies to all of you, <laughs> any one of you who have younger brothers who, like, might want to step into dead men's shoes. You know, this is like a, you know... Primogenitor is like one of those systems, you know, it's it's worse than all the other systems, which is like, at least it's a rule. At least it's an ethos, <laughs> right? That everyone can understand. And, you know, if you just replace it with like, well, I'm stronger, so I I get it, then, you know, then you wind up like the phrase are going to wind <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. Renly paints himself as a step forward, but he's really a step backward if you break down his actions and the ripple effects they would have, that he's going back to pure warlord territory at this point. And you can really see that in terms of the people who support him. There's a couple of older and more seasoned lords that seem to be riding him to power, like the Tyrells, Randall Tarley, Mathis Rowan, that type. But then you get all, then you get the Knights of Summer, and the Knight of Summer in the room here is, quote, young, hot-tempered Mark Piper, who's talking of Renly. And like Renly, Mark is rash and reckless and somewhat prone to counting his chickens before they hatch. He just assumes that Dorne and the Vale will be on board if we join up. So will they? We'll have six kingdoms. Six. I just decided we're going to have six. <laughs> and even even before you come back and reread and you know no way in hell are Duran Martell or Lysa joining this crew, even, you know, first time through that he's just kind of inventing a narrative in his head that is gloriously turning out the way he wants, the same way Renly will. And he argues that joining up with Renly is their best way to rid themselves of the Lannisters. If we join forces with Renly, we will immediately have all these heads on pikes. We will have Tywin and Joffrey and Cersei, they'll all be dead. But Rob insists that there is a deeper principle at work than just killing the Lannisters. Yes, that's his goal. That's what he ultimately wants to do. But he wants to get at the heart of why this war is happening. And to get that across, he stubbornly sticks with, quote, the right. And he's, she's trying to find this deeper principle. And, and Stannis is going to do the same thing. I think Stannis miserably fails to find that higher principle in Clash of Kings. That's, that waits for Storm of Swords. But you see, you see Rob searching for it and realizing that, that Renly's not that direction. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's a real tragedy, ultimately, you know, in an AU where Rob and Stannis could join together because they have the same ideology that they do kind of dominate these, dominate themselves. And I think also, too, when you think about, like, what Mark and some of the, the lords who are talking about Renly are, are not really understanding uh, or not really comprehending, and this is actually the fault of George R. Martin as an author, is that the Blackfire Rebellions are not that far removed from events into 98 AC, and that a lot of these river lords saw the impact of Damon Blackfire going for the Iron Throne as opposed to Darren, uh, as, as opposed to Darren II and all the ruin and destruction that caused to the Riverlands themselves. And of course, it's not these Riverlords' fault because George R. Martin had not invented the Blackfires yet in the narrative itself. So they're not being like, whoa, you know, back at the Blackfire Rebellions, you know, this happened and this was bad. And we need to talk about this historically in the context of what it would do to you know, younger brothers and younger sons of, of mine and what they could possibly do to the heirs and to primogeniture, like Steve was saying, you know, Primogeniture, you know, at least it's an ethos, as, uh, as as we see in the Big Lebowski. But you know, at the same time, though, we have, in contrast to these lords talking about who they're going to back, whose crown they're going to support, we have someone else in the room who has something to say about the war and about all the politics that are going on, and that person is the one woman who has done only one thing wrong in her entire life, Lady Catelyn Stark. Catelyn kind of cuts through all the back and forth of which king do we need to support and how, and tries to get the larger questions of should we be engaging in this conflict at all. And the emotional core of this chapter, what makes our POV more than a camera on Rob's crowning, is Catelyn's spotlight monologue pleading for peace. And it has strengths and weaknesses, both of which I think are important to address. The strengths are pretty apparent. She wants a life worth living for the family she has left. 
And who wouldn't want that? She's the only one in the room who seems to sense that not only that things are bad, but that they have the potential to get much, much worse before it's over. And she wants Rob to pull back before that happens. And what I like is that it's not out of nowhere. You can see her building to this conclusion throughout the chapter. Again, that buildup I was talking about. She she rejects Edmure's simplistic call for an eye for an eye when he says, we'll, we'll avenge Ned, and she just immediately snaps at him for, for bringing that up. She interrupts Theon's triumphalist framing of the campaign so far when he's telling this grand story about Rob's battles, and she cuts him off, kind of symbolically cutting off his, his glossing over the hard realities that they're dealing with. And most poignantly, as I was saying earlier, she, she wonders wistfully if Rob has ever been kissed by a girl in the gods, if he's, if he's had time for that, if he's had time to be just an innocent teenager exploring his, his first romantic stirrings. And she wants that for him, and she cries and rubs it away angrily. So that this, this is kind of swelling inside her, this need to be done with him, this need to get Rob home. And she is expressing the most classic of literary themes, that violence is circular, that blood will have blood, that it, it's going to go round and round until nothing is left. And so this is no way to build a legacy and no way to be the head of the family and no way to live your life. As we were discussing with John 9, Rob can't bring Ned back. And the desire to do so can lead you to filling the hole left behind with other people's blood. And you can see George drawing not only from his own personal politics, as everyone brings up, but also just countless stories about the perils of aggression from Shakespeare to Star Wars. And some of the responses to Catelyn fit right in with that critique, that critique of the immediate plunge into aggression. You have Lords Karstark and Bracken demanding that their losses be given meaning, which is definitely understandable and relatable, and everyone would have that feeling in that moment, but it's irrational and impossible. You can't give a life meaning by piling more death on top of it, and I think you can see George making that argument throughout the series, probably most at length with, with Quentin, where his entire story is kind of about that point. And at the same time, though, I think Catelyn's argument does have legit flaws that some people in the room are savvy enough to point out. Uh, the Blackfish notes that given everything that's happened, the terms will have to be more substantial than a trade of a handful of hostages to create a lasting peace. And I think even more telling is, is Titus Blackwood's objection when he says it's not as simple as just bending the knee to the Lannisters and then we all get to go home. There are two kings in the realm. So who are we supposed to make peace with? If we bend the knee to the Lannisters, won't they just order us to go fight the Baratheons and vice versa? Neither option lets Rob just go home and make babies as Catelyn wants him to do. And coming back on reread, of course, it's also clear how wrong Catelyn is about the job of defending the Riverlands from Tywin being complete. It has only just begun. So while Catelyn's argument is is heartfelt and moving, and it's correct in the broadest possible sense in terms of how you should organize a society and live your life and what your priorities should be, it's not necessarily a workable solution in the moment that everyone just ignored. Right. So uh, just a couple thoughts. Uh, one, you know, I think one of the weaknesses of the argument is that she does frame war and peace in very personal terms that, right, they're fighting for Ned and her daughters, but other people have other personal terms hmm. and their degree of how attached they are to the Stark family will vary by nationality and personality, right? You know, the River Lords don't really give a shit about her daughters, you know, why should they? Um, you know, likewise, you know, if you are Rickard Karstark, you're going to have a very different feeling about like, well, Ned's dead, so we all go home. He's like, mm-mm, this doesn't end yet. Um, and in a feudal war, you know, as as irrational uh, as these people are being, you still have to get them to agree. Because otherwise, they're just going to go off on their own. As we um, see with the Karstarks. You know, and yeah, like you say, he brings up my Eddard. What did my Eddard die for, for just to bring back his bones? You can see him saying, well, what about, does my Ned not matter as much as your Ned, Catelyn? Yeah. Um, the second thing to, to add to your point about the war in the Riverlands being done, like, 
in an important way, you know, not only is there an army in, in Harrenhal, is there another army on the border? There's reavers in between. The Riverlanders can't go home. They're hmm. trapped by geography, right? No matter what happens, the Westerlands are to their west, the Crownlands are to their east, they can't take their ball and go home. Which is why I think the great complicating factor in, in what we're going to discuss next is the fact that the River Lords join in. That it's not just the king in the north, or the kingdom in the north for the northerners. It is the kingdom of the north and the trident. Um, and then the third thing is that, like, you know, as as correct as she may be, like, Martin isn't going to let her go. Yep. <laughs> so he's he's got his thumb on the scales to make peace a human impossibility. So, you know, the Blackfish's point, I think, speaks to the fact that, like, the Lannisters are bad actors, they murdered Ned despite his agreement with Cersei. Tyrion is going to send false envoys. Tywin is going to break every single taboo in Westerosi culture. Like, how do you make any kind of agreement? You know, like, even when you give in, right? Which, you know, when she sends Jamie back, like, you know, and she's got all of her hopes pinned on that. It's like, you can't trust them to follow through. Um, and then the final thing is that, like, because Martin has made sure that Arya isn't in King's Landing, the Lannisters can't fulfill Catelyn's minimalist terms, <laughs> even if everyone agreed to them. Like, if she was the most persuasive woman in the world, and, like, all the lords were like, all right, fine, we give up, like, they're still going to be waiting and, like, not getting a good answer about where's Arya. I love that line from Tyrion when he goes to confront Cersei about the Starks at the beginning of season two. And she admits that Arya just vanished. And he says, what, in a puff of smoke? And he's just <laughs> furious because, yeah, this is this is an immediately destabilizing problem for the Lannisters if they ever want to actually make a peace deal with the Starks. Because as soon as the Starks hear about this, that peace deal is going up in flames. And, yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying about the Riverlords can't just go home. Because if the Northmen were just to pack up and go home, how long do you think the Riverlords would have their peace with Tywin Lannister before he's immediately back in their territory? to punish them and take control for what happened to Tyrion in the Riverlands. The, the Riverlords need the North on their side as military and political allies. And yeah, that's I, I think you said it well, that that's what really makes the, the crowning such a complicated moment. Um, and yeah, there's really nothing simple, I think, about the crowning of Robb Stark in terms of what motivates it and what comes from it, what it creates and leaves behind. Robb's ascension emerges less as the inevitable endpoint. I think George could have written it poorly in such a way as to make it feel too obvious or like the, you know, the, the only choice on the table. But it's the result of everything we've been talking about, the political ingredients that are being pressure cooked in this room. And you can see George, as you said, methodic methodically cutting off the other options one by one. It's fascinating that as the options are being kind of ended one by one, that they're like, no, we can't swear to the Lancers. No, we're not going to swear to Renly either because there's Stannis that there. Well, we're going to swear to Stannis. Uh, Rob's like, uh, uh, not not sure. You know, uh, uh, why should we? He hasn't done anything like, yeah, you know, like he's just he's right. sitting on an island. How would we even support he him if we wanted declared. to? Yeah, 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 and, and that's that's the thing, right? Steve, uh, like. They don't even know if Stannis even wants the crown at this point in the story, right? I mean, I think like when we when we look at this as a, from a rereading perspective, we know that Stannis wants the crown at some level. And Very much, Stannis, please. Yeah, right. And Stannis was, is going to be crowned, but they don't know this out in River Run in 298 AC with Renly being crowned, Tywin Lannister their south, Joffrey Baratheon in King's Landing. And that like leads us to this point where they're like, Okay, so what do we do now? And it's great because a solution finally comes to the form of Great John Umber just like jumping to his feet and getting ready to cut that Gordian cut that 
getting ready to cut the Gordian knot that's going to spell a lot of plot going forward from this juncture in the story. Absolutely. This is what makes Stannis' criticism of Rob to John in the Storm of Swords so just pathetic and unfair when he says Rob should have done his duty to me instead of riding off to conquer the Riverlands. Like, dude, you had not crowned yourself yet. If you had, Rob's decision here probably would have been a lot easier. He would have bent the knee to you immediately. But for a variety of reasons, some sympathetic and some not, Stannis has kept mum, and that's what's put Rob in this kind of impossible position. And yeah, it's the great John who finally finds a finds a solution. As I've said before, I think Lord Umber's larger-than-life persona sometimes obscures the extent to which he's a cunning and very ambitious politician, which you also see with his uncles in uh, Clash of Kings and, again, in the, the dance Winds of Winter fight over the North. Like Euron at the King's Moot, the Great John realizes that the weakness of all the options on the table intersect perfectly in such a way as to leave room for a very specific new one. That he's, he's, he's listening to everyone talk, and you can like feel the camera zooming in on him as he goes, wait, okay, so if we're not going to go with the Lannisters, if we're not going with Renly, I see... I see that the, the commonalities, the, the common problems with all these arguments and that all of these solutions require us to swallow our anger on be- behalf of assholes that we don't know or respect. And we, none of us actually want to do that. And so he decides that he's going to be the one to identify himself with that anger and with finding a new option. And he's going to reap all the benefits. Hence him calling himself Rob's right hand going forward. And it's a really bold political move on his part. I mean, I really don't get the sense that he discussed this, that he discussed this with Rob beforehand. Do you? I mean, I don't think he talked with anyone because you know you see up until that moment, right? All the other Northern lords. I mean, we we hear from Mage Mormont sort of you know as as the symbol are engaging in Westerosi politics, right? They're like debating Stannis versus Renly versus the Lannisters. Um, and then that's what kind of makes Northern nationalism way more complicated in the show, that, like, the Great John is creating an imagined community on the spot, right? And he's drawing on very specific cultural touchstones, right? It's the Wall, it's the Wolfswood, it's the Barrows. Um, and if it's like, the Barrows are the only Southern-Northern thing he mentions, right? He doesn't talk about the Dreadfort, he doesn't talk about White Harbor, he doesn't talk about the Neck, right? Or, you know, the Flint Cliffs or whatever, it's like... <laughs> No, the stuff that really matters to House Umber. <laughs> what a coincidence. But it's like enough to bring other people on board. However, the thing about nationalism is it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to exp- impose a singular vision of it. Rickard's Karstark is going to have his own version of Northern nationalism. Wyman Manderley is going to have his own version of Northern nationalism. Even Roos Bolton, in his own weird Vlad Tepeyshian way, is going to have his vision of Northern nationalism. And, like, you can't, you know... Put that genie in the bottle, and you can't sort of say, no, only mine count. Exactly, and you brought up the example of the Manderleys, and I think that's really telling, because the Manderley story of Northern nationalism is a very, very different one than that of someone like the Great John, because the Manderley story of Northern nationalism is about assimilation and integration and being welcomed in the North by the Starks, and that that's not a convenient narrative for the Great John, who's trying to talk about this right. continuation. Their, their gods are wrong, Exactly, too. that's very inconvenient. So, of course, you talk about the bearers of the First Men. Of course, that that's what you bring up. You bring up the Wolfswood, which is nature and kind of ancient and doesn't really change with the politics. You bring up the Wall, which is thousands of years old. You bring up these 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 <laughs> symbols of an ancient, unchanging culture, which isn't the reality. I, I just thought of something, which is that, like, if we remember from the wor- uh, World of Ice and Fire, like, the Blackwood is, uh, uh, Tidus Blackwood is sitting right there thinking, like, hang What's on. What's all this about the Wolfswood? The Blackwood, yeah. not the Wolfswood. <laughs> That was mine. Let's get it back. Exactly. That gets at all the complicated history. And the Great John is is tapping into that history in some ways and 
conveniently alighting it in others. And like, as you were saying, that's the dance of nationalism. You seize on some parts of your history and your commonality and your national storytelling and other parts you, you try to leave behind. We're going to see that with the Ironborn too, as the old way constantly tries to remake itself and pretend that nothing else is happening on the Iron Islands at all. And it's, it's, it's rooted in so many cases in loss and grief. And there's, there's a grievance here in this room, especially with when the Great John starts talking, that goes deeper than Joffrey or Tywin or even Ned. Like, this is about Rickard at some level. It's about Brandon. It's about Torrin and Egon, if you want to go back far enough. It's about this palpable sense that, like, the South owns the North somehow and shouldn't. And you can see George tapping into that well of fierce rage and joy combined in this moment as the Great John talks, this repressed identity springing forth. And there is this immense exhilaration to it, again, that, that fireworks display feeling. But I think it's worth examining the Great John's speech closely, because he says some things that aren't that aren't necessarily awesome, but are, are just are just more interesting than I think he's he's given credit for. Like, yeah, a lot of what he says excludes a lot of people in the room. Like a lot of the river lords or the Manderleys, even their gods are wrong. Applies to every follower of the faith of the seven, including our POV. And it, it's it's right. which is it's interesting because like yeah, the Lannisters follow the faith, but that's not why they did what they did. I mean, <laughs> Joffrey like befouled the Sept of Baylor with Ned Stark's blood. And the thing that makes, again, this is going to be so much more complicated, is despite the fact that he excludes the River Lords, they join anyway. And there's this, like, really interesting bit where when Catelyn is describing in her father's hall this ancient cry, and you're thinking, well, this is an ancient cry that never rang <laughs> <Yep>. here. <laughs> this is not the place of the kings of the North. You know, this was the place of, you know, the king, the kings of House Justman, or the Teagues, or the Brackens and the Blackwoods, and that's the problem, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Like, but the fact that the Riverlords are going to graft themselves into this Northern nationalism means that it's going to be the kingdom of the North and the Trident, which means Rob has to balance the political interests of two sets of vassals with two different political cultures. And he's going to have to answer the question, like, are the Riverlanders full members of the new nation or mere auxiliaries to the Northern cause? Even someone as close to him as Edmure Tully is going to get really fractious about this point and be like, don't treat me like a child. Don't tell, you know, don't treat me as, you know, I'm a Lord who just has to do what you say without any kind of, you know, advice and consent here. And it's hard, but, you know, Rob needs them too. Like, it's it's this pact of mutual dependency, right? He needs the River Lords because he doesn't have enough men on their own. They need the North because they can't take on the Seven Kingdoms by themselves. Which means this, like, you know, this, like, new kingdom is going to be a, um, a real fusion and a coalition, and this gets really clear when we get into Catelyn 1 of A uh, Clash of Kings, a chapter that I would love to come and talk about. <laughs> uh, because, like, Rob Stark's peace terms are have to be very carefully couched to deal with both sides. Right. He sets the boundaries and very specifically in, to Cersei Lannister in a way that includes the Riverlords. And I think it's interesting, too, when you look at the history of the Riverlands themselves, they've never been... An independent kingdom by themselves. They've had claims staked on them by the... Well, they haven't been for, for a, a long, long time. long, time. But they've had claims staked on them by the Stormlands, by the Iron Islands, by elements of the Reach as well. If you want to look at it in some ways, this is a kind of another epoch of another kingdom claiming ownership of the Riverlands in the form of the North this time, who have never been 
in the Riverlands themselves. I think it's also really fascinating too. You guys had, had alluded to this, but I think it's fascinating that Rob is the king of the North, yet never journeys back to the North and the remainder of his arc in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's really interesting because he becomes the king who lost the North to Bruce Bolton come. Yeah, it's a, it's a very medieval thing. It's like, you know, Richard the Lionheart, you know, ne- almost never setting foot right. in England. All of these, you know, kings of England who are, you know, French speaking and spent their entire lives trying to grab this or that prov- province of France. Right. Well, I think, you know, we were talking about this as an expression of northern nationalism and as the Riverlands kind of grafting on it has with previous kingdoms. But another way to think about this is what's left over of the Roberts Rebellion Coalition. Like, this is half the group of houses that got together to take down the Mad King. But the Aaron forces are now being held hostage by Littlefinger, and the Baratheons are going with Robert 2.0, a.k.a. Renly. So you just have the kind of this rump force left over that is is now unwilling to make this bargain with the Iron Throne that it made with Robert because they're getting less and less out of it. And that's really what's driving the great John speech here. Like, it's so striking that he barely mentions the Lannisters at all. <laughs> like, he mentions them in passing at the end. Like, he's almost... Or Robert. Or Robert. Like, he's almost forgotten about them. Like, oh, right, the Lannisters. Yeah, I don't like them either. Like, they're the <laughs> instigators of all this drama as far as he knows. Like, I mean, obviously, Littlefinger has his hand in it, but no one in the room knows that. Um, before mention the Lannisters, he mentions Dorne. He mentions Stannis and Renly ruling me and mine from some flowery seat in Dorne, which no one has proposed <laughs> and no one would ever propose. They haven't come into play at all. It's, he's kind of telling on himself there that this isn't really so much about the actions of the people to the south and more just about kind of who they are. And this is kind of the... It, yeah, what they represent. Is, yeah. It's like Dorne is there be dragons. It's like, it's it's a place he's heard about. It's not true. Right. And the notion of being ruled from anywhere in the south, it makes him think about Dorne, just like culturally other. And it's like, that's the sand place and they wouldn't understand me. And like, I'm kind of making the great John out because it's kind of a racist here. But what I'm saying is <laughs> this goes considerably deeper than the Casas Belly. This is an argument that you could make in peacetime as well as wartime. It's just that wartime offers the opportunity and the emotions and the inciting incident to make that case real and make it work. It's the classic example of how inciting incidents draw deeper, older tensions to the surface. Like, the Great John is kind of the equivalent of Oberyn during Tyrion's trial and that whole farce in King's Landing. Like, in both cases, it ends up being not so much about the explicit issue on the table and more about this larger political restlessness that the individual downfalls are only feeding. And this is in part why Tywin's attempt to snuff out the spark of Northern independence with the Red Wedding ultimately backfires because it convinces everyone in this room, well, for the most part, maybe not Jonas Bracken, but convinces most of the people in this room that they were right to turn their backs on the Iron Throne if this is how the Iron Throne is going to treat them. And that's captured best by the the story I was mentioning earlier, the Manderleys as communicated in A Dance with Dragons, where they were driven from the South heartlessly and had no friends and were sore beset and driven into exile and they were taken in by the wolves of Winterfell. And that's that, that for them is what you know, how Stark is about and being in this new kingdom is about. And that spirit is in this room and that spirit did not die with Rob Stark and Tywin's ability to kill it really only made it stronger. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I think the northern, the cause of northern independence lives on from people as far afield as Wyman Manderley is to Roose Bolton. I mean, as Barbara Dustin will talk about in Dance with Dragons, Roose Bolton wants to become king of the north too. So this cause of nationalism is going to have deep ramifications for the rest of the story. I do think it's interesting, too, that um, when we talked about in Catelyn 8, we talked about how the Great John had advised Rob to march on King's Landing from from uh, from Moat Kaelin itself. And you do kind of wonder, like, it, it does make sense that the Great John would be the one to urge the King of the North and urge Northern independence, because maybe this is like his second play. Like, his first play was like, oh, let's make Rob Stark, you know, 
I'll put Rob Stark on the Iron Throne. Second play, let's make him King of the North. That seems a little more sustainable given the circumstances that all the players are finding themselves in now. So I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. I think King of the North continues to stir my spirit. And I think that about covers us for this plot portion and analyzing this all of this stuff. And that takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of this episode. It sure does. So, as many have noted, George essentially does a cover version of Catalan's plea for peace in this chapter when he gets to a dance with dragons. Alaria Sand, paramour of the late Prince Oberyn, begs his eldest daughters to clamp down on the cycle of bloodshed after the arrival of his killer's skull, or is it, in Sunspare. <laughs> the quote is, Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Elia is 14, almost a woman. Obella is 12, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you as Daria and Larisa worship them. If you should die, must Elle and Obella seek vengeance for you, then Daria and Lori for them? Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? Alaria Sand laid her hand on the mountain's head. I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me, to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I am old and sick? And it makes sense that George would return to this earlier scene for inspiration when writing that scene in dance, especially given the parallels between the Starks and Martells that many people have pointed out. You know, they're at the opposite ends of the country. They they both come to King's Landing at various points and, and die horribly, multiple members of their family. Oberyn is kind of the Brandon Stark equivalent in a lot of ways, this, this hot-headed Lothario who was very dangerous but very charming. But while the similarities between Catelyn's monologue and Alaria's are clear, I think the contrasts are also worth noting. Like, Alaria is specifically pointing out that Everyone who directly harmed House Martell is dead and gone. And that any more bloodshed at this point can now, therefore, only be directed at innocents, particularly Tommen and Marcella in this case. In the case of the North and Riverlands at this point in the story, not only, as we were saying, does the direct harm to the Riverlands continue and indeed ramp up in the Clash of Kings, but the architects of Doom, namely Joffrey and Cersei and Tywin, are still around, and they continue to shape policy. As such, I think there's a case to be made that Alaria's speech is more persuasive than Catalan's. Do you think that's fair? I agree with that completely. I think, too, at, at that point in Dance with Dragons, Dorne has not entered into any... I mean, they're on a war footing, but they have not entered into the war itself. You know, we have Ariane being sent to Aegon Targaryen, <clears throat> young Griff, Aegon Blackfire, in early in the Winds of Winter. But still, there's no Dornish ar- There's Dornish armies in the fields, but they've not shed blood, or, or, or there's no Lannister army invading and ravaging Dorne or anything like that. So... I think that Alaria's case is a lot more sound than Catelyn's here because, I mean, the questions still arise. Like, what what do you do now? It's not like we could just say, okay, we're going to have peace. We're going to bend the knee and we're just going to progress forward because who do you bend the knee to? You have a, an enemy army killing and raping and ravaging their way through the Riverlands still, even as they're talking in River Run. Not the same case in Dorne. Dorne is going to throw itself into a war, likely in the Winds of Winter. But all of that is because of Dorne instigating the war and instigate, put, throwing themselves into war rather than being the the non-aggressors, so to speak, in the in the war that's coming. For sure. Another quote that sets up some very important stuff here is from Hoster. And Lysa, a cool wind moved through his thin white hair. Gods be good. Your sister? Did she come as well? He sounded so full of hope and yearning that it was hard to tell the truth. No, I'm sorry. Oh. His face fell and some light went out of his eyes. I'd hoped I would have liked to see her before... So here you see George introducing a thread that will pay off with major dividends in the Storm of Swords. Hoster longing to be forgiven by Lysa for Tansy before he dies, and her refusing him that along with refusing to send military aid to Rob. The first time through, this might not stand out to you, or if it does, all you can really conclude is that Lysa is just being paranoid or isolated or crazy or something. 
coming back on reread, you can really see George setting up the, the rot that's eating away at House Tully, just like the quote-unquote crabs in Hoster's belly. And oh god, the reveal in A Storm of Swords, the payoff for all of this, when we learn about why Lysa has cut herself off from her family, especially her father, and what that has led her to do ever since, is just, it's, it's, well, it's both devastating on one hand, and it's just one of my favorite twists in the story on the other hand. So I can't wait to cover that when we get to Storm, but I love seeing the setup for it here. Yeah, I also cannot wait for that payoff. I think it's 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 it is probably George's best twist to date so far in a Song of Ice and Fire. I think, and that being rolled into Hostertully's, how do I say this politely? Hostertully's conduct with his daughters, and that being a inciting incident which leads to Lysa hating her father for excellent good reason, is one of those twists that was really 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 good. It kind of in the same vein, though, where we have some of the background here, we, we're having a lot of foundation being put for that twist that comes to the end of A Storm of Swords. We have Catelyn recounting an event from uh, from her youth with Lysa and Littlefinger in the Godswood. As I was saying, Riverrun is a place of sense memories where flashbacks are constantly intruding on Catelyn, contemplating the present day. And one such in this chapter, she's thinking back to having played a kissing game with, uh, with Littlefinger and Lysa when they were kids. Quote, he tried to put his tongue in my mouth, Catelyn had confessed to her sister afterward when they were alone. He did with me, too, Lysa had whispered shy and breathless. I liked it. Hmm. So this is the origin story of not only Littlefinger's destructive climb, but also Lysa's equally destructive decision to hitch her wagon to his star. And this is one of those moments that's uh, that it's really good, but it's frustrating because Catelyn is coming so close to putting the pieces together here. Like, there are several moments in her story when she's thinking about Littlefinger or about Lysa's cover story not making sense when she comes so close to realizing that those two are setting it up, but she can just she never can quite emotionally get to the idea that they have betrayed her. That's that's very true. But, I mean, to be fair to Catelyn, most, if not all, readers had not come to that conclusion until you get to the end of Storm of Swords. I do like that little touch that Martin implements here where he has that little fingers always trying to chew the mint that's growing in the godswood in this chapter that's mentioned in this chapter do you remember back to the hands tourney and remember when a certain little finger type character came up to Sansa Stark and Sansa thinks that his breath tastes like mint do you think that little figure tried to put his tongue had thoughts about putting his tongue down Sansa's mouth in that chapter possibly uh, baby Jeff yeah. why would you yeah I'm sorry probably. I apologize to Chloe already <laughs> On the other hand, I, I feel like he, he's one of these people who, like, if he'd been around in the 1980s, would have had, you know, Banaka on hand 24-7. <laughs> Little, Littlefinger is definitely one of the characters I feel that is, is most inspired by people George has met in the modern day. I'll just, mm-hmm. I'll put, there's, there's a lot of ways that can, that can be taken, but I think he's one of those characters for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, another element set up at the end of A Game of Thrones that pays off in A Storm of Swords has to do with Rickard Karstark. The quote here being, Lord Rickard Karstark, gaunt and hollow-eyed in his grief, took his seat like a man in a nightmare, his long beard uncombed and unwashed. He had left two sons dead in the Whispering Wood, and there was no word of the third, his eldest, who had led the Karstark spears against Tywin Lannister on the Green Fork. So you can, I think you can already see in George's mind that he is Rickard Karstark in mind as the one among the Northern Lords who's going to snap. He probably doesn't have the details in mind yet, but he's already setting that up, that Karstark's downward spiral is going to continue. And you can see George providing more connective tissue for that in this chapter with Rickard's line, a man has a need for vengeance, he says to Catelyn. As well as him, of course, uh, stomping out in that Clash of Kings chapter you mentioned, Stephen. When Rob offers the Lannisters peace yeah. terms, immediately Rickard leaves the room as soon as he hears even the idea of peace terms. Yeah, I mean, he's he's pretty much like, you know, he's he's on a kamikaze run from, from kind of moment one. Like, it takes him it takes him a while to figure out, like, what is it he needs? 
Um, or, you know, what is what is it that he's, like, ultimately going to do because, like, Ox Cross wasn't enough. Exactly. None of these battles are enough. It's not working. It's not working. Okay, I need to die now. Um, yeah, I think you nailed it. Ox Cross is just what I was thinking because he's the one who kills Stafford Lannister, right? I think personally. So, yeah. like, I feel that, like... That's almost Rob feeding him what he wants, like saying, I know you want, and I, I know you don't want peace terms. Here, go kill this one Lannister. And then, yeah, you can see Rickard doing it and going, Nope, still got the hole inside. <laughs> right. It's like Not, it can't be, can't be filled. Once you pop, you just can't. Yeah. Precisely. I do, I do like how the third son that is left off the page is Harry and Karstark, who becomes a factor in, it's interesting. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a completely off page and he is, yeah, he's a cipher. Right, right. He's still off page even like in A Feast for Crows, right? He's not picked up by Jamie or anything like that. So that becomes a part of the plot in A Dance with Dragons where you have those wonderful Karstark guys attempting to get Harry and Karstark killed so they can inherit Carhold itself. Like the Karstarks just seem like... They're, they're very <laughs> dramatic as a family. Yeah. No half measures nice. with them, whether it's Rickard or Alice. They're always just all in on their big, big wild plans. God love them. Yeah, I was trying to figure out where is he. He's is in, he in Maiden. Right, isn't, he's yeah. supposed to go home. I thought like there was a deal being worked out, but I think yeah, I'm not sure. I don't recall him. Yeah, being said, maybe yeah, maybe he'll come into play in the northern plot. We'll see. Yeah. Speaking of lesser houses, we have the new young Derry Lord in this chapter, uh, the child lord of House Derry, and he declares oh, loudly, God, the- "Yeah, he will never call a Lannister his king, and nope, he sure will not." As we learn from the Blackfish and a Clash of Kings. Gregor Clegane kills the kid along with his whole garrison soon as soon after he returns home. And this again brings me back to Renly's Knights of Summer and how like after the Blackwater, Brienne learns about like, oh, this one lost half his arm and this one has just never been the same. And these guys who were cheering and laughing at, at Bitterbridge, they're just haunted by war now. And the same thing happens here. Edmure's circle of young lords or these like obnoxious peacocks strutting around and they just got all this braggadocio. And that dries up so quickly in the face of Tywin's just total war on the Riverlands. It's interesting, right? Because the, the the point is brought up in this chapter about how Carol Vance is now the Lord of uh, is he? God, what is this fucking castle? Do you remember off the top of your hand? Uh, well, there's Wayfarer's Rest and there's a Tronta, and I don't think we ever figure out which which is Vance right. Hall. Vance Hall, yes, the Vance Castle. Just go with that. Right. Uh, how he is now the Lord because of his father has been killed, or is it Mark Piper? I can't. God, I'm just like the worst. Um, and and that is allowing these kind of young, hot-headed lords to kind of take the fore in the Riverlands themselves. And they're similar to Renly's Knights of the Summer in that they're all thinking that war is going to be glorious and great. We're going to go burn the Westerlands and kill Lannisters. And now they're all dying left and right, one by one, and either at the Red Wedding in the wars that are going on in the Riverlands themselves, or they're being pressed into service by the Lannisters to besiege their own the the keep of the of the Tullys themselves in a feast for crows at River Run. So these this is not like there's there seems like a, there's a through theme here about how the people that are loving war and really wanting war and so hot for war it's just like not it's not really working out for them all all that same in the end. Especially when they're young and innocent and full of dreams. Can't be having that. Mm-hmm. So of course the the great John's like big closing pitch, his like his one sentence summary line is it was the dragons we married and the dragons are all dead. Which is a very interesting line because, of course, the dragons return in the very next chapter. And so you've got to wonder, does this foreshadow the next king in the north bending the knee to the dragon queen now that the dragons are no longer all dead? I mean, married is a very interesting choice of words. Is this potentially George saying that uh, that John's going to marry a dragon? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's very possible. Um, You do kind of wonder how much, like, 
how many pages are available for like a Danny John like marriage subplot in the Dream of Spring? You know, also I wonder if others. George R. R. Martin is wondering that same exact thing right now. Right, you, you kind of get the feeling that there might be eight books, but you know, we've we've talked about that in the past. I, I think it I think it's is likely foreshadowing of that. I think. When we talk about foreshadowing for events that are going to be occurring at the end game, a lot of it is found here in the first book specifically. You know, as we progress into a clash of kings, we're getting a lot of foreshadowing for stuff like the Battle of the Blackwater, for the Red Wedding, for different things like that that are more internalized within the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire, less so as we get towards the end game. Sans, of course, the House of the Undying scene for Danny's uh, penultimate chapter in A Clash of Kings. Yes, indeed. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork, and we want to close out this episode with a discussion of this brand new independent kingdom of the North and Rivers, or the North and the Hills, or whatever poetic name you want to come up with for it. So, North, North and the, the Trident, I believe, is the term that uh, that Rob... Sure, right. He gives uh, the Blackfish that title, right? That makes sense. So, I mean, what do we think of it? Is the secession justified? How do you measure that? How do you measure the more intangible ideological rewards of independence against the material costs of attaining it? What are the new polity's long-term chances of survival if you mentally erase the Red Wedding? And what does long-term even mean in this context anyway? How do we judge these kind of things? It's justified, I, th- I would say, come on that side. And there is a real danger in the presentism too, as we talked about in our analysis of Game of Thrones Tyrion 9. Like, we know that the end state of this new kingdom is the Red Wedding. But at the same time, it's important to note that it's not 100% presentism to talk about the long odds this new kingdom faces. Catelyn herself brings up the issue in this chapter talking about the futility and that they went to war against when Lannister armies were ravaging the Riverlands and Ned was a prisoner falsely accused of treason. We fought to defend ourselves and win my lord's freedom. So those things are fought and done for. So what does that mean for the new kingdom now? What is it going to be? What is its basis? And I know that Steve will have a lot of thoughts about this, but... In a 2012 AMA, George R. Martin was asked about whether this new kingdom had any chance to survive. and He responded, the North, perhaps. The Riverlands are more problematic. With no natural boundaries, the Riverlands are vulnerable to attack from all sides, which is why their history has been so full of blood and tumult. You know, it's interesting. You know, as we were talking about earlier, you were talking about the geography of the Riverlands, Steve. Maybe George isn't giving full credence to the complexity of the Riverlands geography here. Maybe the Kingdom of the North and Rivers had a fighting chance at this juncture in the story, question mark? Yeah, I mean, at this juncture in the story, definitely. The, I think the the problem for the, the sort of Kingdom in the North is, um, you know, its chances of surviving are strongest while the the War of Five Kings is going on, right? That the moment that the the rest of Westeros unites against it, right? And we see that even with just the Lannisters and the Tyrells getting together, their survival odds go way down. Um, and, you know, they are they are hampered by certain, you know, like Martin is, is creating certain obstacles, like the fact that the Aarons are not involved, right? If, if, if they, you know, to the extent that like Rob has you know, a, a potential, you know, border on his east that he has to worry about, right? That is the eerie and, like, what is the veil doing? Um, you know, the he's definitely got to worry about the Ironborn to his west, although if they had splintered off, that would be quite useful. If Balon you know, Greyjoy had a brain uh, cell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, ba- if Balon Greyjoy had a brain cell, he would be part of this, like, you know, northern rebellion... And, you know, things would be much more kind of, uh, you know, easy for them. Um, I do think that, like, I think Rob could have maybe held on to the Trident. Like, if you hold River Run 
Heron Hall, and Moat Kalen. That is very, very difficult to attack because, you know, you have to cross against rivers. You have to attack castles that are very, very difficult to attack. Um, and, you know, you give the sort of interior lines of communication uh, to your enemy. Uh, but I think a lot of it would have to deal with the, like, underlying political dynamic, right? If the Iron Islands have seceded, if Dorne has seceded, you know, if, if all you're dealing with is, like, a rump southern state, maybe you can make yourself more uh, trouble to deal with than you're worth. If you're facing the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, I think you're going to be in much more difficult uh, shape. In terms of, like, is it justified? I mean, you know, I think from the position of the Northmen, right, I, I think Great John's argument makes a very strong case, which is, like, three times now, <laughs> right? You know, the the... Iron Throne itself has done unspeakable things to the ruling house of the North and other houses of the North in complete violation of the feudal social contract. And it's like, you know, they, you know, yes, they like overthrew the Targaryens, but like there was never a full reckoning. There wasn't like a, a truth and reconciliation commission after Robert's rebellion to like have a full airing of grievances. You know, there was there wasn't a a, a a sort of a full settlement in that way. And so like I don't know, like how do you how do you make peace with um you know the Lannisters when they're completely bad actors? You know, um I think the situation again, you know, this is where the broader uh, political environment would be very different. You know I, I can see a circumstance, right? If Stannis had declared himself by this point, I do think it goes much more smoothly. Like, okay, what are we going to do? Stannis has the right. You know, that's why, you know, if Stannis reveals his letter, then I think they sort of put the, you know, the dots together as they will in A Clash of Kings and be like, oh, this is why Bran Stark was, you know, almost assassinated. This is why Ned Stark died. You know, that offers a way out. But again, like... The, the tides of war can turn, right? What happens if the Starks declare for Stannis and then the Battle of Blackwater happens just the way it did, you know, in A Clash of Kings? Like, okay, now you're you're still fucked. <laughs> I love what you were saying about this moment kind of being the, the leftover tension and unresolved bad feelings from Robert's Rebellion, that this is kind of a political failure on Robert and Ned's part, that they never really kind of dealt with this and we just wanted to move on. For a variety of sympathetic reasons, including personal ones, like this is just a trauma pile for Ned that he doesn't want to touch in terms of what the Targaryens did to his family. But it's, it speaks to Ned's kind of hesitance to think of politics systemically, that his his focus was, I have the good king now. I have my friend, Robert Baratheon, muscled like a maiden's <laughs> fantasy. So clearly the problems have been right. solved, right? And then he gets back to King's Landing in a Game of Thrones and realizes, oh no, that's not actually how fixing the kingdom works. We can't just put the good guy in charge and and so i think you can you can see that resentment feeding uh, the politics in this room i guess especially yeah. see why they wouldn't it, be on board with it's Renly. interesting you don't see that as much from the the river lords because like there were malisters who died in eric's court like you know brandon did not just bring northmen with him to the red keep he brought you know? the element in river but Lages, i yeah. guess yeah, but I guess for them that was more of a you know because they're they're 
political history with the Targaryens has been so different uh, from the North. You know, so much less at arm's length. You know, there have been Tully, Hands of the King, and so on and sure. so forth. So I can see why there's a different perspective. And like you are saying, you have to politically create these different relationships. Like, you know, if you stick around the Riverlands long term to fight and set up that military strategy oriented around Riverrun, Harrenhal, and Moat Kaelin, well, how do you keep the Northern Lords fighting in that conflict long term? Why are they still there? Yeah. So you got to integrate them. You have to have marriage alliances. Obviously, the Bolton yep. Frey marriage alliance turns out to not be a good thing for Robb Stark and his kingdom. <laughs> But that kind yeah, of alliance. Yeah, but that sort of thing is not Yeah, that's you need idea. to yeah. to tie these bonds. And that, of course, takes time and a lot of focus and energy. But yeah, that's the kind of long-term institution building that makes it feel like one kingdom and feel like one country. And yeah, I, I, can, I can see Rob, if Rob had been given the space to make that happen, I could see him making that happen. I think, too, that there's the other aspect, which is why didn't Rob then swear to Stannis when Stannis declared himself the king? And I think the reason, simply put, is by the great John in this chapter, it was the dragons that we married, it was the dragons that we bent to. Stannis, is, yes, he is the rightful king of Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms, but there's no compelling reason for Robb Stark to bend the knee when historically the Starks have been the kings of winter for thousands and thousands of years before that with a brief interruption uh, in the form of the Targaryens and the Bar- and Robert Baratheon themselves as kings. And, you know, it's also, as we talked about as well, it's hard to kind of put the genie back in the bottle. Like if Rob bends the knee to Stannis in a Clash of Kings or a Storm of Swords, then it's he delegitimizes himself, potentially puts himself and his family at risk of a ambitious northern lord attempting to unseat him as if that's that's nothing that he really has to really fear in the narrative whatsoever. So, you know, but but, uh, you know, but he does have to fear that because he has the characters like the Boltons, characters like the Karstarks, people who are very ambitious, who would likely do him harm had they known that he was going to had they known that rob was going to prevent them from gaining more power by ceding some of his power to stannis baratheon himself and at the same time too stannis baratheon's personality makes it very hard for him makes it very hard for rob to bend the knee since he immediately declares him a traitor in the clash of kings prologue and refuses to treat with rob stark after uh after his wife says uh no that's that's not the way we're gonna go down in this in this uh, go down politically Timing-wise, there's not much of a window in which declaring for Stan- declaring for Stannis actually makes sense for Rob. Like, after he's king in the north, as you were saying, politically, there's a, it looks just really bad to bend the knee to any other Iron Throne claimant. At that point, he would have difficulty keeping his northern vassals in line once he got back home if he did that. And it's just at the start of A Clash of Kings, why bend the knee to Stannis? What does Stannis bring Rob? Stannis has 5,000 men and a terrible political temperament. That's not much of an addition to Rob. And there's the, that brief window in which Stannis, his, his star is rising and he has a bunch of men after Storm's End. But there's not that much time in between that and the Blackwater in which he loses everything. And Rob is on the road for a lot of that. And who knows? We don't even know when he learned about Stannis declaring himself king and declaring that Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella were born of incest. We see Catelyn respond to that. We never actually see the moment because yeah. Rob is off screen for Clash of Kings. So I think that gets at what Stephen was saying about the, this, the nature of this timing and how George's thumb is on the scale to make sure that Rob and Catelyn never get the complete information, never get the exact moment they need that, that could have allowed them to escape this. And I think that about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Catelyn 11. So thanks again so much for coming on, Stephen. And do you want to tell the fine people where they can find your stuff? Uh, sure. So uh, you can find my uh, writing at racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com. Uh, I uh, recently launched a Patreon that I'm trying to... Uh, you know, get off the ground. So, you know, if you can contribute to two Patreons, uh, please consider patreon.com slash Stephen Atwell. Yes, we are uh, 
patrons of, of your of your excellent patron. We really enjoyed it, getting all the. And thank you very much for of course, your patronage. We, we always love getting the early access to your your chapter by chapters. I try to read them the night before, uh, in the event that I have I'm brought I'm inspired by the spirit to come and comment on the Reddit post you put up there. So I'm always looking forward to that and always enjoy engaging with you on on various topics there. And it was a pleasure having you on, man. Absolutely. Jeff speaks for us both there. And speaking of Patreon, we have our Patreon episode for the month coming out shortly. It's going to be out on a Saturday the 27th for our uh, small council, on Sunday the 28th for our Kingsguard, and then on Monday the 29th for our uh, Sworn Swords and Poor Fellows. And that is our Patreon episode for the month is going to be a Game of Thrones in review. Looking back over mm. the first book as we wrap it up this month and talk about uh, some of the things that uh, our Hand of the King, Wolf Manzak, was bringing up in his question for this episode. What's changed about our relationship to this book? What, what surprised us? What did we like more than we thought we would? Dislike more than we thought we would? Will Jeff ever pick a single favorite chapter for this book? Or will he keep changing <laughs> as he reads things enthusiastically? <laughs> it's going to happen again next week, I guarantee it, with Danny Ten. Anyway, we're just going to... We've had so much fun going over this first book. It's obviously a big, exciting transition into book two. And we wanted to thank our patrons for being with us along that journey. We thought it would be perfect to, to look back at book one and, and see what we got out of it. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to doing that. I mean, I'm very excited about finishing a Game of Thrones, getting into a Clash of Kings, obviously. But it'll be fun to look back in retrospect now that we've... You know, we've done this this podcast now for 19 months, right? January 2018. Now it's July 2019. We were finally finishing a Game of Thrones itself and going back and looking through some of our old notes. I've, I've been listening to a lot of our older episodes. Um, Why would you do that to yourself, sir? I, I know. It's, it's really hard, actually. I don't, I don't know, Steve, if you find this for your Race for the Iron Throne stuff. Oh, but re- reading my own stuff, because every so often, like, because I'm always hyperlinking to my old essays, right? I'm... I'm relooking at, at stuff I've written before, and I'm like, oh shit, there's a typo. There's another typo. God damn, I didn't end this sentence. And then I have to go in and, like, fix it compulsively. And then it always, like, resends everything to social mm-hmm. media, and I have to go around deleting <laughs> posts because it's like, no, no, it's it's really not the same. You know, it's it's not new. It's not new kind yeah. of there. Been there for sure. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F if you have not. We got that episode coming up. A bunch of other patron-only episodes in the bank for you to check out. As always, guys, rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play, wherever you find our fine podcast. Uh, follow us on social media at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenna B. Fish on Twitter, Brenna B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is forceandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So... Join us next week for our final chapter in A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 10, in which the last dragon brings back the real dragons in the, it is the defining act of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire. This chapter is the defining act of politics in this, in A Song of Ice and, in, in A Game of Thrones. This upcoming chapter is the defining act of magic in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're going to get all sorts of weird because Danny's final chapter is so fucking weird and awesome at the same time. That's one of those chapters that almost defies analysis. It's just so good. All we can do is kind of gesture hopelessly at it and go, just go, just look, read it. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Everyone knows that chapter. Everyone loves that chapter. It's one of those ones that hooked everybody in the first time they read it. And I'm sitting here wondering how we're even going to get our heads around it, but I can't wait to do it with you, sir. So check us out next week for Daenerys 10. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on. And we will see everyone next week. Bye.